Hi, I'm Josh. I'm Ken. And I am the third revelation. I'm TJ. <laughs> uh, and this is Serious Film People, uh, our series on the Best Picture nominees of 2007, 2007 movies, 2008 ceremony. And this is our fifth and final episode in the series. Or not, not final, but <laughs> fifth movie we're discussing. Right. And the final episode will be our forthcoming recap of the five movies. But uh, today's our fifth movie, which means, alphabetically, we're talking about There Will Be Blood. Yes. Paul Thomas Anderson's There Will Be Blood. Yes. Which is a, a promise. Yes. Abra sangre for those of you who speak Spanish at home. Thank you to TJ for TJ's Spanish Corner. Ken, are you excited for There Will Be Blood? I, I'm so excited. I've been looking forward to this conversation for weeks now. For your whole life. Well. You were born ready for this exactly. conversation. Exactly. Yes, exactly. Since I, yes. Do you remember when you first saw it? I do I I can I remember distinctly the first time I saw this. It was on Valentine's Day, two thousand eight, with a That's bunch hot. with a bunch of fellow classmates of ours from the class of 08. Which, that by, by the way, we all went we went to an all boys school, so it was a, a yeah. sausage fest in the Tivoli Main <laughs> Theater. Yes, I was going to say it was Tivoli. Was, I feel like I was there. Was I there? Uh, I think I, so. I thought but... you were. I might have been. Yeah, we stood and then out. We stood in the parking lot for correct. like and, an yep. hour and a half after talking about the movie. Yes, to the point, and it was also a later night showing, so it was like getting late in University City. And I remember standing in the parking lot and thinking, "Well, if we all get mugged, at least there's a group of, you know, a dozen of us who certainly can't fend for ourselves." <laughs> You're not going to get mugged at the Tivoli. <laughs> well, actually, you might. I don't know. It was the only me. thing that got stolen that night was the show by Daniel Day Lewis. Am I right? Okay, okay, okay. TJ, was that the first time you saw it too? Or no. was that? Uh, first time I saw it was at the Tivoli. It was January of 08 um, mm. with Matt Rice, actually. And mm, then good dude. I saw it a second or third time. I, I forget where the Valentine's Day mandate comes in, but I did see it with my dad. Um, at the O'Fallon 15 in the great state of Illinois. And that was another movie like No Country for Old Men that was, this one was much sparsely populated than that film. But afterward, somebody was like, well, that movie didn't make any sense. And I took it upon myself to turn around and uh, correct them, perhaps. Why would you do that? Why? I was 17 and we all mm. make choices. But, uh, I felt very strongly about that movie. This movie was probably... So my favorite movie until about December of 2007 was 2001 A Space Odyssey. And then from January 08 until like 2011, my favorite movie was There Will Be Blood. And did Tree of Life take over from there? Yeah, that's been my favorite movie Uh, for 11 years. Okay, yeah. I thought that might be it when you said 2011. Yeah. Um, I don't know exactly when I first saw this. I know I saw it in the winter of 0708, probably around the January time frame. And now that I think about it, I think I might have been at that Valentine's Day, the infamous Valentine's Day uh, dude fest at the Tivoli. I may have been there. It's a I'm bit really like sure game six of the 2011 World Series. Like thousands of people claim they were there, but yes, you know, we'll never really know for sure. I was in a dorm room in Indiana for the 2011 game six, the World Series. So I was not there. I can't, I cannot claim to have been there. But I may have been at the legendary, infamous Dude Fest the Tivoli for Valentine's Day. Oh, wait. That would be blood. And this is a movie that I have uh, owned on DVD since 2008. Yep. I have like a really weird, like, it's like, it's not, really, it's not a traditional DVD case. It's like cardboard. Yes. I have, I've got I the have same that too. Why is this not on 4K? Right. I've got the same one. I don't know. 
But I have the same, like, folded piece of cardboard sleeve yeah. that the DVD came in that I got, you know, 15 years ago at this point. I haven't, like, upgraded at all. I should upgrade. But, you know, to TJ's point, have they released, like, a, a good home media? It's, it's, not, it, it's not on 4K, which is it's insane on, to me. It's on Blu-ray. It is not yet on 4K. I have not upgraded either. But, yeah, this was this was one of the first films I remember bucking up the extra money as soon as it was released on physical media. Like, I didn't hold back. I didn't wait for the price to come down. I remember buying it when it was available. And it hasn't gotten a Criterion release or anything. It has not. None of none of P.T. Anderson's, except maybe, does Punch Drunk Love have? Punch Drunk Love. I think has a Criterion. But that's it. it yeah. Well, I mean, Criterion stuff is kind of there's there's weird stuff with distributors involved. There's there, there's back behind the scenes stuff that you know. Well, and it's not all pure if, pure quality, right? Things. If you if you read their uh, mission statement, it's not like canonizing the best films. It's mm-hmm. yeah, making yeah, yeah. available interesting well, and important films. You that know? that may be something that that may be something that Criterion claims they're not canonizing great films, but a lot of people see it that way. That's true. A lot of people see the Criterion. Claims, it helps that even though they don't claim to be that. They team. do often produce physical media for some of the greatest yes. films of all time. So mm-hmm. <laughs> it's natural. And I would and I would count this yes. among the greatest films of all time. It's, it's certainly among the greatest films I've ever seen. It is easily. It is one of those you look at you look at Anderson's filmography and you're like, "Oh, man, I would kill for a Criterion edition of all of these." Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, so let's talk about Paul Thomas Anderson. Uh, so I think this was probably the first PTA movie I, I saw because, you know, I, we, we were – I was freshly 18 years old and, like, as I've discussed in previous episodes, I was in my first film class this time. So I was, like, discovering movies. I probably saw Boogie Nights the following summer, summer of 08, and I probably saw Magnolia around the same time. I may have caught Punk Strunk Love around then too, but um, I don't think I'd seen any of his movies before this. Uh, TJ, had you seen – some PTA before they will be played, do you think? You know, that's a, that's a good question. I think I saw uh, Boogie Nights and Magnolia junior year. So I think mm. I saw it, both of those right before this. And maybe Punch Drunk Love, maybe. Um, I know when this movie was coming out, I was super hyped for it. So I think I might have done a go to Netflix. Remember when there were discs? Yes. And uh, yeah, of moved course. to the top of the queue, the, the four previous paul thomas anderson i am 95 percent sure that i saw boogie nights via the netflix discs in the mail back when i saw boogie nights for the first time so okay so you were anticipating this i don't oh yeah i think i was anticipating i was anticipating this movie because our film teacher was telling us about it in the months before release but i don't think he ended up like poo-pooing it because it was like rated higher than juno and he was such a fangirl for juno love juno I, i don't remember that detail but uh I guess I'm not that surprised. Oh, we but would get in that's arguments also tough. about it in class. I mean, listen, which I like you history now. has gone to show that I was correct, but you know, let the record show that yeah. TJ was right and Mr. Cummings was wrong uh, vis-a-vis Juno and There Will Be Blood. Ken, were you anticipating this movie? Have you seen any PTA movies before this? I'm pretty sure I had seen uh, I had seen parts of Boogie Nights on television. I had never. I had not mm. yet sat through a classic, classic uh, family film. Yeah, edited down slightly. This is one of the, I had. I had caught bits of that movie on television, so it was edited. It was obviously edited for television. Um, it wasn't until <laughs> after Next, Boogie Nights. <laughs> then at eight, Miracle on Thirty Fourth Street. Yes. That, that, how did you know the double feature? You must have been watching <laughs> the same night. Um, no, so it was after this one that I went back and watched Boogie. Saw Boogie Nights and Magnolia, like you. And Punch Drunk Love. And I think I, I ended up watching all three of those sometime freshman year of college. So it was the following yeah. year I ended up tackling those three. Um, I was somewhat anticipating this film because there was buzz around Daniel Day-Lewis. However, if I'm being honest, last 
last week's last episode's uh film no country for old men was the film i was most anticipating this year because of the coen brothers um, also the, the the teasers for this were sick yes they the, they were really good one, yeah. once they, they started really, dropping really good yes it, your anticipation grew uh for whatever the hell this was about to be i remember the, the, the first thing they put out was that almost monologue he does in front of henry i can't keep doing this on my own with these yeah. people yeah, I remember, like, none, none of the trailers really painted a good picture of what the movie was, but there was a lot of Johnny Greenwood music. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of that speech, the, you know, I have a competition mm-hmm. in me, yeah. that speech. And also the, I've abandoned my child, I've abandoned my boy. Um, oh, I don't remember that in the know, trailers, but I trust you. The hits. I remember the- I, I'm pretty sure... Yeah, there was definitely, that was definitely... Well, they, they teased the cinematography, sure. too. This, mm. this the, the teasers, it did provide enough information to know that whatever this movie was, it looked really good. You know, speaking of Paul Thomas Anderson's older movies and anticipating, anticipating this, I kind of wish that, like, at the time, I had been more familiar with Boogie Nights and Magnolia and Punch on Glove. Because, like, just spare thought for the people that had seen those and really liked those and were like, oh, I like this Paul Thomas Anderson guy. And then this comes out. Like, what that experience must have been like. Because this is, like, this is a turn, mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. Fair to say? It, I would agree. In his previous work? It's a turn yeah. for Anderson and, a, at the time, I think, a turn for, for film. Like... This year, you get yeah. No Country and There Will Be Blood so. coming out back to back like this. I mean, this was <laughs> this was a big year, as we've discussed already. Uh, yeah. Definitely, yeah. we're watching films unlike anything you've Don't seen. Don't spoil the recap. Don't spoil the recap episode, which we'll we'll cover all that. Uh, a way, I, I, and I think a way this was a turn for him was it was also at the time. I don't know how well this criticism ages, but at the time, it was heralded as a sort of like realization of one's voice because the popular critical retrospective on his earlier films was that Hard Eight was like his Tarantino knockoff and Boogie Nights was like his Scorsese impression and Magnolia was mm. his Robert Altman impression and then Punch Drunk Love was like Truffaut Godard and then this which mm. which people point out there are elements of Ford, Griffith and Kubrick in this um this one felt much more wholly original and i think is much much closer in terms of tone to what he does with the master for sure afterward well you you mentioned the people that he's cribbing from for his previous movies he was leaning heavily on treasure of the sierra madre and and john houston in this apparently he was like watching it every night when as he was writing the script you can i assume he would have recommended that movie to day lewis in prep the the world of the film that that daniel plainview exists within the, the role he plays it's very Dobbs-like. I mean, the descent from the beginning of the film to the end, the greed, uh, it's, it's there. It, it's not the same performance, for sure. They're very different actors, very different performances. But there is kind of a Dobbs-esque element to the character as far as the film is Who concerned. Who is Dobbs? Dobbs is the Humphrey Bogart role in Treasure of the Sierra Madre. The, the okay. gold crazy. Seen, he's no. he's the one in the film. He's the main character searching for gold at all costs. And sure, 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 sure. Yeah. Well, we also all know that, you know, Dan DeLewis based his voice for Daniel Plainview on John Houston in Chinatown, right? John Houston's character in Chinatown. Which... You didn't know that, Ken? I, I didn't, you didn't know that? I actually did not know that, but I am not at all surprised. Yeah. In fact, I'm just... The I'm future, just... Mr. Gitz. The future. <laughs> TJ, did you know that? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, again, John Houston's all over this movie, both in Daniel Day-Lewis's performance and also like the, the movie itself is based on, not based on, but you know, 
barring from Trezor Sierra Madre. I think that's interesting, TJ, the point about how this is him finding his voice. Um, I don't know if that's, I, I don't know that that's accurate. I just, that was kind of the, the critical retrospective at the time. Sure. Yeah, I buy that. Well, I mean, I think, again, I, I, I was, we were, we were 17, 18 at the time. So it's not like I, I had my ear, ear to the ground for all this, but like, my understanding is that people were kind of like, oh, he, he, he seemed like he had the goods with Boogie Nights and Magnolia. And he showed a lot of promise, and then this is just him delivering on all the promise. And it, it, maybe it's rare that, like, a, a filmmaker comes out the gate, like, showing a lot of promise, then actually delivers on it. And, you know, uh, this is him delivering on it, for sure. How much more do you want to talk about Anderson? Because this could get hot and long. That's what she said. What else do you have on Paul Thomas Anderson? Vis-a-vis this movie. He peaked here, and... This is my opinion. Anyone would have peaked here. He, Anyone he would have peaked, peaked here, here and declines very, very quickly. Um, I was so stoked for The Master. The Master is pretty uh, expertly made, but as many times as I have tried to force that movie to work and make sense for me, I, I, I don't think it works. Um, and it's advice, I was super stoked for because I'm a huge Thomas Pinchon fan. And Inherit Vice is a mess and it isn't really about anything i have only seen phantom thread once but was underwhelmed by phantom thread and i think licorice pizza is not a very good movie i know all the things that i said were probably just sins committed towards you all but my thing with anderson is i miss the anderson of boogie nights and magnolia like back where he had feelings and was much less pretentious and his work now seems like it's made by someone who Knows too much about film and not enough about life. Woof. Okay. Well, I don't know how you can say that stuff and say that licorice pizza is not. Very I was just good. about to say, yeah, licorice like, pizza, which I, it's it's not. I think to every criticism you just said, I'm going to say I'm going to point to licorice pizza and be like, why didn't you go watch that? Right. I think I, 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 did, I did watch that. I think yeah. Josh and I are of okay. the opinion that licorice pizza is his best film since There Will Be Blood. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. I don't wrong. know. Phantom Thread's also Phantom Thread's also very, very, very good. I will agree. Really like Phantom Thread is also an excellent film. I agree with TJ on Inherent Vice completely. There, there was a time though where Paul Thomas Anderson tried every movie out. Every movie he was going, he he tried to make the greatest film ever made, except Inherent Vice. Okay. And well, and that's why it ended. It, that ends like really kind of with the master, I think. But it just. I don't, know what he, I don't know what he's doing. I don't know how to define one of his films anymore. I don't know what he's doing. He's fallen for me to the point that I don't look forward to his films anymore. Oof. Man, we... I, that sucks for you, man. Yeah. I'm, I'm disappointed to hear that. That And you're missing out. Luke Speed is great. Fan Thread's great. I, I agree. I've tried with The Master 2. It has, I, has never really clicked for me. I keep trying it every few years. I give it another shot, see if it'll click. And uh, it still hasn't clicked. But I'll keep trying. Maybe someday it'll click for me. Inherent Vice, um, I think it, it makes about as much sense to me as I'm, it, it's supposed to make, which is not very much. Uh, I kind of agree that that's more of a vibes movie, I guess. I, I don't know, though. Um, but I think Phantom Thread's one of the best movies of that year. Lookers Pizza was my favorite movie of last year. Um, I, I agree this is his peak, but this would be anybody's peak. Any any filmmaker who in the, who's made movies in the last 30 years, if they made this, it would probably be their peak. I just, yeah, I mean, with he doesn't really very, take, very few exception. He, he doesn't take big swings anymore. This was a huge swing. The well, Master's a big swing. Uh, yeah. I was going to say, The Master is ambitious. That, he doesn't, he, his last three films, he doesn't really take big swings anymore. I would say Phantom Thread is a bit of a swing. It's subtle. Adapting, but 
adapting Thomas Pynchon is a big swing, regardless of of, of anything else. It, just a, attempting that is a big swing. I think That's he, fair. I think there's that, still. It's not even one of Pynchon's best or most complex novels, though. I think the point we're getting at though is he's still ambitious. It's just the the final product varies to taste. I mean, making a film about a dressmaker that's very subtle, very quiet, very slow moving, but there's a tension throughout that whole film that's just kind of well that that movie's about the power dynamics in a romantic just, relationship. It feels small. It, small focus does not mean it's not ambitious, though. For someone though that made Boogie Nights, Magnolia, There Will Be Blood. I don't know. I'm I'm missing the the big swing, you know? The fact that he made that film. I think if you go back and watch Phantom Thread, that is not a movie that anyone thinks is going to deliver, really, on paper. But there's something there. Like, he's reaching. Well, the something is DeAndre Lewis and Johnny Greenwood, I think, that makes a lot of that movie. It makes a lot of this movie, too, honestly. The music, we're going to get there. The music is, yeah, the, the music helps make this film... I think I think it it can't be understated how important Johnny Greenwood is to the mm. last fifteen years of Paul Thomas Anderson's career. I think I don't know. I guess my point was of my long rant is I, I'm really disappointed in him. He used to be one of my favorite filmmakers, and I don't know. I just don't find his work interesting anymore. Well, we can talk about that when we get to the 2017 series or the 2021 series when we talk about Phantom Thread mm-hmm. and Licorice Pizza. For, for now, now, let's focus on the apex. Um. I was listening to a podcast about There Will Be Blood on the Ringer Network recently, and the question was posed, what's what's going to be the first movie in Paul Tom Sanderson's obituary? Will it be this, or will it be something he hasn't made yet? It is hard to imagine it being anything but There Will Be Blood. This is kind of like asking in the 60s and 70s, oh, well, what do you think will be the first line of Orson Welles' obituary? Like, there's a film everyone can point to. There's one of those era-defining Voicing films. Optimus Prime and Transformers. Exactly, yeah, Transformers. <laughs> yes, exactly. exactly. It's one of those just... It, it is an important film in the history of cinema, and it holds up so well. It's it's just one of those kind of mind-blowing films when it drops and is released for the first... You see it for the first time, you're like shocked that someone made this film. Someone thought and thought of this and put it together. TJ? That's a tough question. I think it'll probably be this, just in the sense that, as I ranted for about four minutes, um, I don't even see him trying anymore to make a movie this monumental. What is this? What is this movie? And why is it so monumental? Because it is like, in, in what way is this as big of a swing as Boogie Nights or Magnolia? And I'm directing this at TJ, because you're the one who's saying he's not ambitious anymore. Mm-hmm. What is ambitious about this movie? Like, what is this? What What's the swing here? There are ambiguities in it that are complex and arguably unresolved. There are aesthetic reaches that are incredibly impressive and work. Um, if, if they didn't, the, the entire film sort of face plants. It dares to go tonally and emotionally quite all over the place, often within the same scene. That's why I think the baptism scene is the best scene in this movie. Um, mm. And it's it's mysterious, but in your face, it's grandiose. As I said about the 75 films, this is a movie that dares to posit a large thesis about America, the American character, contemporary America, the history of America. It, it, this is a big ideas movie. And it's a big ideas movie working at 
a strange operatic level and with a voice that you can't really watch this and say it's like many other films that came before it. You can do a sort of, like I did at the beginning, oh, there's a little bit of D.W. Griffith in here. Oh, there's a little bit of John Huston in here. But there's nothing that you can kind of connect it, you know, connect link it to like you could with some of his earlier films. What's this movie about? Ken, what's this movie about? You mean literally or, 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 or metaphorically? Take the question however you want to take it. What's this movie about? Uh, well, I, again, as TJ's pointing out, I think it is a film about America, kind of like if we were to discuss The Godfather or, or any semblance of other, or Nashville, like we discussed in the 75 series. It's a film about something grand, the big idea, but a small, relatively small story. It's not wide-ranging. It it's not jumping yeah. around too far in time we see a very limited number of characters and yeah it's this kind of one character study watching this one man transform over time serving as more or less a metaphor for the country in the early 20 end of very end of the 19th century early 20th century um it's it's saying so much about the capitalism versus religion or in some degree how the two are have always been linked or mixed um, yeah, it depends on how wide you want to go or how limited. It's either a very it's a it's a small ensemble drama about uh, a bunch of people striking oil in East California uh, in the early 20th century, or it's about the transformation of America from 19th century rural, you know, agricultural based and religious based uh, enlightenment into capitalistic driven powerhouse that it becomes yeah i i I think you guys are both right in that it's relatively small scale i mean it's it's grand but it's it's relatively small scale because it really it really is about a guy making his fortune that's that's what the movie is it's a guy making his fortune but the time and place kind of make it 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 suggests bigger ideas like there's a shot where you know it's it's the unsettled west right and there's a shot where daniel and hw first arrive in little boston and the shot follows their car driving along. And there's like four buildings behind the car. And like there's a couple buildings that pass in front of the car, pass in front of the, between the car and the camera. And like it really is establishing this is America being built before our eyes. And how once Daniel moves into this town, it, you know, as he tells the townspeople, this community will not only survive, it will flourish. And, you know, it is. It is the foundation of the country, of the mo- of modern America, right? And the fact that the movie opens where it's just a single guy alone in a mine over untouched landscape. And when he drags himself with his broken leg through the landscape, the camera tilts up and you just see hills. And you hear Johnny Greenwood's score. And you don't see any signs of man anywhere. It's just hills. And then that slowly builds more and more until the next time we see the land, there's a single Derek and like five guys along with Daniel. And then... 20 minutes later in the movie, there's like four derricks, and there's a little town, and there's hut, huts where people are living, and they're building a school, and they're building a church. America's blossoming before our eyes. So even though it is just a movie about one dude making his fortune, and also like him in some ways reaching out for human connection, that's kind of his arc to an extent, a failed reach right. out for human connection. Tragic, yeah. That is the that is the small personal element of the story, but just, just the fact that it takes place in the early 1900s in the blossoming West that kind of gives it bigger ideas about how this country's formed and how these, these country people were formed and, you know, the people in power subjugating the people not in power and the 
Abel Sundays of the world and the Daniel Plainview's of the world and the Eli Sundays of the world and that kind of stuff. Is that fair? Well, I think one of the interesting things about his arc in terms of the story is as far as he goes, as much as he gains and loses, he essentially ends up in the same place. Um, mm-hmm. he, he The first time we see him, he's in a hole. Banging he climbs on, out of a hole. Yeah. Banging on some rock, right? Mm-hmm. And at the end of the film, we see him in the basement smashing a dude's head. Uh, There's a great shot. He's a caveman. I, my, my theory when I was like 18, 19 is he's a demon because we were introduced to him underground. And he climbs out from underground in like maybe the second shot of the movie. And then a great shot before the bowling alley scene is there's a shot of him like descending, descending the stairs. With his, yeah, he's he's drunk and, and doubled over with his posture. And yeah, he's he's descending back from where whence he came. And TJ, I think it was actually you when we were like in high school, when I asked you, what does I'm finished mean? The last line of the movie, I'm finished. And I think you might have said like, he's finished with his descent or he's finished with, I don't know, whatever, whatever this whole thing was of him beginning the ground and returning to the ground. I'm done you know? with, I'm and, done with my dinner. I just killed Eli. Uh, yeah. I am, I'm finished in the sense that I murdered somebody. So they're going to take me in, but also my project is done. Right. I, the embodiment yeah. of capitalism have pummeled religious fervor religious uh charisma into submission and my project is finished also in in a weird way he is i mean he, he is the third revelation as opposed to eli claiming yes. to be he is the third revelation because he is what is worshipped yes he, he, is he represents what is yes. now worshipped yes he succeeded <laughs> where eli could not <laughs> real quick though because just because tj kind of brought it up uh the opening scene the first shot we see of Daniel is him using his pickaxe and swinging at the rock. And um, Johnny Greenwood's kind of overture score, which just that hum, goes, that mm, buzz kind of le- buzzes up and like rises to like a crescendo. The first, that's the first time we hear that music is the opening scene and Daniel chipping away underground with his pickaxe. The second time we hear that piece of music is when he is digging the hole in which to bury Henry. And that's, that's also the second time we see he- he- uh, Daniel with a pickaxe instead of underground now he's on top of the ground digging a grave with it and then you don't hear the music in the in the in the bowling alley scene but you do see the same motion except instead of swinging a pickaxe he's now swinging a, a pin a bowling pin so and and when that's he, a good you know you know when he says i'm finished suggesting that like i've reached the culmination of my project the brahms violin concerto comes in which mm. plays as soon as he actually starts up the derrick as well yes right that's right so it's linking yes. that moment of Eli's murder towards also the first time that he's actually raping the natural world. And it's also the moment he shorts Eli because he tells Eli he'll introduce him to bless the Derek and instead he doesn't. Proud just... daughter of these hills. <laughs> Blesses it himself <laughs> to, to spite Eli. So here's something I focused on this time. And this was not new to me, but it was it occupied most of my thinking. There's a symbolic triangulation in this movie of blood, oil, and water. Mm-hmm. Um, the title is, uh, it's a great title. It's ominous, it's threatening, it suggests carnage. Oddly, though, this is not a very violent movie, and it's not a very bloody movie. In a sense, No Country for Old Men, a better title for that is There Will Be Blood. <laughs> um, and, and so there's... It sort of raises the question of why is this film called this? And I think that it is, in a sense, prognosticating that as we continue along realizing the human project, it's or the, the American project, it's going to require 
human capital or human beings to be exploited and to be disposed for the sake of basically like factory production and wealth. You know, Joe Gunda dying in there, right, is what is maybe like the mm-hmm. second major vi- graphically violent thing. But we have this triangulation of blood, oil, and water. And water, of course, is biblical representation of baptism, renewal, but also destruction. There's a sense of clen- of cleansing. Uh, oil represents money. Oil comes out of the ground. It's the lifeblood of the countryside in this. And then, of course, blood is uh, passion, family lines, your literal lifeblood, rage. And if you look at there's there's two interest there's several things but there's two on the top of my mind uh, in the in that beginning 15 minute sequence that's wordless when they strike oil uh, and they're flicking it off the whatever goes in there you know there's yeah. oil on the camera that is then mm-hmm. mirrored at the end of the film when the water splashes onto the camera when Daniel declares yes. himself the throws, third revelation and right? he throws the bowling ball and it hits the yeah, hits yeah. The water, yeah so we have that we also then have that moment where H W as a bebe his his actual dad is holding him and he takes some of the oil and presses it on his head which nobody would actually do unless you were making a symbolic language in your film and he's being mm-hmm. baptized in oil there which daniel mm-hmm. when he mm-hmm. comes out of that hole after his compadre gets smashed is covered in blood and oil right mm-hmm. so there's there's this uh interesting sort of overlay of those three symbols and the ways in which throughout the film they substitute for one another or the power that they imply changes. Uh, I've been talking too much. so You nailed the baptism thing because we see it so often in this film. I mean, Eli is pressing for, for everyone to be baptized, everyone to be baptized. He's urging, he's urging Daniel's em- employees at the Derrick. He wants Daniel to be uh, to be baptized, and Bandy, of course, succeeds in getting him to agree to it. And, he and the terms of the baptism are then he gets his pipeline. And the slapping there, when Eli slaps the shit out of him at the baptism, is kind of retribution for when Daniel drug him into that pool of oil and slapped the shit out of him there. When he more or less baptized Eli into the, and new, exactly. yeah, the new greater religion. That I mean, Daniel's already been baptized. By the time he's being baptized in the Church of the Third Revelation by Eli, he's well and truly baptized already. Uh, he's been covered in oil throughout the film, multiple times, um, from the very beginning, and then, of course, in Little Boston, when they finally strike oil and it goes off. I mean... He's been baptized multiple times, as have all of his employees. Uh, I mean, the town is overflowing with it. It's basically, it is more valuable, despite the fact that this is East California, uh, He's it's more valuable than water. I mean, mm-hmm. as important as water is, as, as you mentioned, normally what should be the, the source of life, uh, it's not here. Blo- uh, the oil is. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, the oil takes on a, a very important substitute for all of those other things. I'm I'm struck by when they pull Gundy out. He's covered in mud and he's covered in oil and there's those just fine very few like splotches on his outfit of blood. Like that crimson red blood is shown, but it's mixed with the oil. When you make a pipeline in your triangulation of blood, water and oil cuz the the pipelines are, are built to get to the coast. Correct. They have mm-hmm. to get their oil to the coast. Right. It, it has to get to the water. Right, yeah. it's going the opposite direction. Right, well, granted, it's salt water, so they wouldn't be taking water from the ocean anyway. But uh, yeah, normally, what you pipelines connecting the middle of of 
you know, dry, arid land like this. Normally, a pipe would be bringing water to Little Boston. And instead, they're taking nature, the oil. They're shipping it out and sending it off to the coast. Creating pipelines that are sort of like veins to run them through. And several times we hear the language of ocean of oil under your feet. Mm-hmm. Right. Look at the man-made lakes that are created around Little Boston. There's mm-hmm. no actual lakes of water. There's, however, this yeah. giant lake of oil. Do you guys have any other thoughts on my proposed triangulation? Well, I'm asking. I'm asking about the how does the pipeline fit into that? Just because you're taking the oil to water, and in order to get the pipeline, he has to accept the blood mm-hmm. of the of the of the lamb, yeah. you know, and get baptized. But interestingly, and he also. Yeah, commits murder right before this, minutes before this, yeah. gets blood on his hands to get this pipeline. You know? And as he buries Henry, there's just a little bit of like seep, water seepage in there, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, in, in the grave. shallow yeah. grave. And mm-hmm. interestingly, oil and water are, in, are they don't mix, they they separate, right? And oil is sort of the, the, the liquid of greed of the oil man of capital. It's the blood of capitalism in the United States. And then the water is that... Uh, force that renews and gives life to religious fervor and spirit. What do what do Daniel and Henry do the afternoon before Daniel murders Henry? What do they do that afternoon? They go swimming. They go swimming. They go swimming, they go swimming in the Pacific. And that's such a. I said we get liquored up and shot. take him to the peach tree dance. Uh, you mean the creepy shot of Henry's body entirely in shadow, but his head in in sun? No, I mean when Daniel goes back in the ocean he's and he's got that look on his face, like. You're gonna have to bleep me. Oh but yeah, I'm gonna and, f- you up, and then that, <laughs> that wave. And then comes. the waves, oh. the waves kind of, the waves move him towards the camera. Uh, the two the other terrifying one is, when, sorry, when he's head, holding a gun against Henry's head, and Henry confesses all of it. And it's a pretty long, like close up. It's on a Henry. long shot, and then, long shot on Henry. Oh, and then it, it reverses to, to Daniel, Daniel and, and the look in his eyes is insane. Pants shitting. That's a scary. That's yeah. a sc- that's a scary shot in the movie. Honestly, yeah. poor fake Henry. I think I think with Henry it's a it's a clear answer. With Eli it's a less clear answer. But my question to both of you is when does he when does he decide to kill Henry? And when does he decide to kill Eli? I I, I think TJ just answered he decides to kill Henry at the beach. That's when he goes back into the water and we get that shot. That's when you know at least that he's decided. Because well, there's, he's set off by there's peach three tree. there's three looks. There's three looks. He gives him that look when he's in the water while they're swimming. That cuts directly to Daniel's face inside a brothel later that night, and he's giving Henry a similar look of disdain. And then Henry drunkenly comes up and asks him for money. Yeah, I, and then the third look is is the t- pants shooting the terrifying. Well, that, by that time he's already made the decision. I think he's. I think he makes the decision pretty much in the water. I don't think he. I think he knows already when they're at the the whorehouse or whatever that night or the bar wherever they're at. Um, I think he already knows. He's just going along with it for the time being because, well... How about Eli? I don't know that he decides that because it's so... You know, the one is is an execution. Yeah. This is mm-hmm. sloppy bludgeoning. I, I don't know that this he is, actually... This is... He, he bashes him and knocks him unconscious. And then he kind of looks down at him for a second. And then he probably just like impulsively decides, yeah, I'll just go ahead and finish the job. Bash his head in. Entirely. Which, all three times I saw this in the theater... This scene, I, I, I love that final scene, and I don't know if we're going to go into... Should we go into that now, or...? Sure. We can, yeah, sure. Okay. Sure. Uh, people were laughing at, you know, 
It takes him a while to wake up. When he wakes up, he does that kind of like shuffle thing as he's drinking. He's eating there's, that steak. There's several really funny lines. Yeah. He's eating with his fingers. Oh, eating that steak and then, with his fingers. And then there's the... Takes uh, an enormous pull of vodka. Yeah. I'm and, assuming that's vodka. And as he's just messing with Eli, when he's like, uh, oh, the Lord tests us sometimes, Eli. Yes. You know, people are yes. laughing. And then there's the whole, the milkshake business. Even when he starts bowling at him, people are laughing because Eli's squawking like a child. And then once he hits him, you could hear like a, <gasps> oh, you know, um, which is, mm-hmm. it, it, it's interesting to rewatch it because it's so clear that like that's where it's going, but it's done in such a like Roadrunner, Wiley Coyote sort of cartoonish way that absolutely yeah well well, as soon as as soon as um as soon as daniel grasman throws him for the next 30 40 seconds daniel's yelling eli's yelling and bowling balls and bowling pins are being thrown so there is a cacophony of sound overlapping sound none of it's really distinguishable honestly you can barely even understand what they're saying besides i'm the third revelation and eli begging for his life basically and then as soon as he knocks him unconscious just a silence Mm -hmm. falls over the whole scene that's when people go ooh mm-hmm. like it's well set up is my point yeah. i guess from a from an oral a u r a l perspective just mm-hmm. it's a it hits hard mm-hmm. i want to rewind to henry though um we can talk about well let me ask this why does he kill eli ken why does daniel kill eli diving into it first of all eli comes in already a dead man walking more or less i mean He's he first of all admits the Lord completely failed to admit to alert him to the recent turn in our economy, which is just a way. I mean, he's basically he's a he's an early twentieth century version of a televangelist, right? He's been pulling one over and everybody. Even if he believe, he's convinced himself, he's been betting just like everybody else. He's been using the radio, uh, the, the new media, the modern age. He's been taking people's money and is now coming to Daniel because what does he need? More money. It's not, it's not religious. It doesn't need religious help. He's not really a man of God. He needs more cash. So he's coming to Daniel already. I mean, he's destroyed. He's out of money and he's not going to be able to get any from Daniel. I mean, this is a lost cause. And we know, you just know from the way Daniel treats him when he goes, sits down and he's re-eating, he's eating this leftover steak or whatever. This is not going to go Eli's way. Uh, in terms of character motivation, I don't know that there's a clear answer, but thematically, because finally he has Eli in, a, in the position he's wanted him in the entire time, which is, if only I could in every way destroy and physically dominate you. But the uh, economic, cultural, social conditions previously kept... He can't do it in the church. He can't do it when he has to be the you know, Rockefeller everywhere else, but you're in my basement. I just lost my son. I'm drunk as shit. Why not? You know? I mean, HW was his last connection to humanity and he just severed it moments earlier. And also thematically, you know, not just in terms of capitalism subsuming religion in the United States, but going back to this, there will be blood. There's this idea that as we continue, there's going to be an inheritance. You know, there's a one of the themes in Magnolia that they bring up the, the biblical line of the sins of the father visited upon the son. That we're going to continue mm-hmm. to inherit this sort of violent domination throughout the United States because of our, our over-reliance on capitalism and, and the exploitation of religion. And what does he do when Eli's yelling, Daniel, we're brothers, we're brothers, we're brothers. And he gets hit uh, in the head. Cain and Abel? Right? Mm-hmm. They're brothers. Yeah. The one bludgeons the other to death. Eli's dad's name, Abel. 
right? You're a stupid man with a stupid son, Abel. Well, e- Eli then and Daniel are both prophets. But what this is, it's it's reenacting a generation later, this Cain and Abel-ness that's going to take place be- over the soul of the United States, I think. Yeah, I mean, that that's a, I think that's a pretty standard read of the movie that, you know, Eli representing religion, Daniel representing capitalism or, or what have you. Um, fighting for the soul of America. As we talked about earlier, this takes place as America is blossoming around them and they are jockeying for control of the people in this blossoming town and therefore jockeying for control of the future of the country, basically. And uh, to, again, continue your metaphor, Daniel is winning that jockeying with his final act there. Well, can, I, can I ask, because one of the common critiques of the movie when it came out was this is not really a two-hander. It never seems like an even fight both in terms of how the characters are orchestrated, but also in terms of the performances that Daniel Day-Lewis and Daniel Plainview completely dominate the screen the entire time. And Paul Dano slash Eli Sunday very early on its second fiddle. And thus the movie isn't really about dialectical opposition between capitalism and religion because they were never really set up as as equals in the film. What do you guys think about that critique? Well, that's because I think religion has never been... Religion was never equal to capitalism in the sense that um, in, in some ways, uh, like an institutional religion in any, however, whatever form, it's always been somewhat connected to capitalism, right? And business, Bringing money, at least by this point in our history, at least by the 1900s, right? So, and and Eli's, I mean, from the very beginning, first time we really meet Eli when he goes to buy the land from the Sundays, Eli's the one doing the business, doing the negotiation. He's the one Mm -hmm. actually demanding more money in the name of the church, right? the The church is not separate from this, but it is by this time wholly subservient, even if it hasn't been fully realized. Eli certainly hasn't realized it yet, but capitalism is replacing religion like you can believe in god but but god has taken the form of money oil business like things have changed we now we now worship at the church of the banks and business so from the very beginning yeah it's clear eli's eli's operating in a world that is not equal to daniel's i agree with the critique that like eli's never really much of a never really much of a foe to daniel like there's never a point where you think that eli's gonna beat daniel in any in any of this but that's okay i don't know i don't mind that i think it's still i wouldn't i'm not sure i'd call it two-hander yeah, i wouldn't either like paul, paul donald's not a co-lead here by any means but he is an interesting foil and an interesting yang to his yin i guess um which leads me to the other question i was going to ask is you know why why when does he decide to kill eli why does he kill eli why does he kill henry I think that's like the key to understanding Daniel as a character is why he kills Henry. I think it's because he began to believe that Henry was related to him by blood as Henry lied. And thus, you know, in that scene we talked about earlier that was in the teasers, he bears his soul to him. You know, I have a competition mm. in me. I can't keep doing this on my own with these people. Well, yeah, that, um, again, that's 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 him reaching out for human connection. I feel like, like then, that's... Yeah, and a large part of Daniel's arc is him reaching out for human connection and failing to find it. And then he finds out that this person who he he even began taking to he took to the first meeting with H.M. Tilford, right, where he told him, "I'm going to find you where you're sleeping and I'm going to cut your throat." And then, uh, and then later on, I love when um, uh, Karen Hines mm-hmm. says, 
you taking Henry to see meet with Union? Yeah. And then Dan Dillard, he just walks away. Yeah. <laughs> he doesn't even answer him. <laughs> uh, so, so he takes him. He starts to give him this, like you're replacing H.W. in a sense. Mm-hmm. And oh, then yeah. he finds out when Henry doesn't reciprocate the recognition of his peach tree dance line that this guy pulled one over on me. And no, no, no. I'm the snake, the snake oil salesman. Nobody pulls one over on yeah. me. Right. Well, the- well, you also you also touched on something that shortly after Henry arrives, he sends H.W. away. And then two scenes after he kills Henry, he brings H.W. back. So Henry really is like the replacement of H.W. Or really, H.W. was... I mean, da- Daniel claims later in the movie why he took H.W. in the first place, which is he needed a cute face to buy land. But also, like, it's clearly more than that, well, yes. even if Daniel won't admit it, yeah. you know? and But, like, once Henry arrives... Suddenly, he doesn't need H.W. as much anymore because he's getting human connection elsewhere. A blood a blood relative, actually, not just someone he found in a basket. I was going to say, that's, that's the key. So I think this is, this is once he kills Henry, this is pretty much his humanity is gone. It, it, it's been going, and it's pretty much gone after this point. Because we don't really see any pleasant interaction, except maybe in the restaurant with H.W., where there's an attempt to rebuild something, maybe. But it's all, it's in front of people. It's in public. And at this at that point, I think maybe he's pretty much bought into the image aspect of it. But yeah, he cries after killing Henry. Now I think he's crying he because of the loss. Well, he cries because he he's he's looking at pictures Correct. of that's what, his real. That's where I'm going. He's he's crying over the Henry loss stole. of actual family. He's he's lost his blood relations. This guy's fake. Henry is not Henry. He he's been hanging around with this this fraud this whole time. And, yeah, he's not really crying for the loss of fake Henry, but he's crying for the loss of his actual brother, who he clearly didn't really know. And the fact that he's not in communications with his sister, Annabelle, or any of the rest of his family. His dad had died. That's the first thing uh, fake Henry sh- says when he shows up. Um, but there's also no hesitation in killing Henry. Like, he lets him speak his piece. He lets him say what he wants, you know, tell me the truth or whatever. But there's no hesitation in knocking this guy off. And, yeah. and this echoes with... He kills this guy when he finds out he's his fake brother. He mourns the loss of his real brother. When Eli calls him brother is when he kills him. So you're getting, again, all of this this sort of Cain and Abel business going on. But one of the questions I have, and I do want to get back to HW in a minute, though, is uh, the Sunday brothers. Paul and Eli and there's, Paul. There's ambiguity about the existence of Paul. Now, if you know the production history, somebody was cast to play Paul and two to three weeks in, got no. Out. Someone was cast to play Eli. Oh, I'm sorry. Thank you, Paul Donna. Thank Paul you. Donna was cast to play Paul. Thank you. Yeah, uh, had strong creative differences with Paul Thomas Anderson and was fired from the set. Right. So then they're just like, weeks "Hey, in. Paul Dano, why don't you just play Eli also?" Which, by the way, that's it's a big lift after just being signed on initially to play Paul. Right. Right. And what it then creates is some confusion about whether they're separate people or not and i think the film actually does answer this but i i think it's a kind of sticky answer what did you guys what's your answer to that wait i don't understand how you could possibly think they were they were the same person how how is that well it's not until the end there's eli references paul abel references paul like there is a there are there's a separate person here yeah the i get what tj's going it's tj it's 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 not a visual medium you gotta like say things out loud it's Uh, he he could be crazy. He does jump across and, t- and attack his dad. And whenever anyone mentions Paul, it's a little bit like, you know, Paul. Yeah. 
doing air quotes. Daniel mentions Paul. Before he kills no, but Dan- he does. Paul but, but was the chosen way, brother. Yeah, but the way he does it is is very mockingly. I think you can read it as like, hey, remember when you grifted me as Paul? Oh, I don't know about that. I think I think there is ambiguity until we get to the end. And Daniel makes he makes the reference back to Paul. For the first time in a while. We haven't heard anything about Paul. We haven't seen him since the beginning. But I agree there's ambiguity for sure the first time we see the Sundays at the Sunday uh, branch or property or whatever. And yeah, you're kind of like, oh, I guess they're twins? Or was it actually Eli this whole time? And yeah, it is kind of, the family is kind of awkward when it's mentioned. There's this suggestion. There is something going on there. Like, clearly Paul has is the black sheep of the family and has been left out. Or, as you're suggesting, we're also possibly led to believe that Paul is a fiction of the family's creation for whatever purposes. They think that they're... This is a way to get money or, or whatever. Um, but I think I think we can pretty much trust that Daniel is being serious at the end. That that reference back to Paul, Paul did exist. He's just not he was he was totally independent from the rest of his family. I, I ultimately agree with that reading, but it's interesting that you never see him in the same place, that they they do cast the same actor to do it. That there's that look between Daniel and NHW the first time they see Eli where he's like, wait a second, right? Um, so I think there's some interesting ambiguity. I, I to say it, that but. the first time I saw this movie, I did think that was going on. During that negotiation, the way Eli is staring at him at the table suggests that, oh no, I know exactly why you're here. Clearly. Mm-hmm. He also seems yeah. to know exactly what has happened. Like Eli, without saying it, seems to be aware that he's here because of right. Paul. right. Well, he even tells Abel that later. Eli tells Abel, like, you you know, it was Paul who brought him here, et cetera. And mm-hmm. Right, yeah, he could. Paul said that my father's weak. Mm-hmm. He'll, he'll sell you his land for cheap, et cetera. Let me ask you this. It's, this didn't occur to me until this most recent watch. How how successful is Daniel before the little Boston Derricks? Like, he has a, he has a well, he has some wells in Coyote Hills, but he's, he uses the Wells and Coyote Holes to sell himself mm-hmm. to Little Boston, to, like, sell himself as this prosperous businessman. And, like, yeah, like I said, like, we, we saw him progressively get more successful where he begins in age 98 as a one-man operation in a hole by himself. And then by 1902, he's got a few guys working for him. And we see him strike. But, like, how successful is he before Little Boston? <laughs> he does lit- literally pull himself up by his own bootstraps. <laughs> he does yes, pull himself yeah, up by his bootstraps. <laughs> but, like, he... When when the the Derek explosion scene, which I want to talk about, that ends with him laughing and like embracing Kieran Hines and saying, "There's a notion of oil under our feet; no one can get at it except for me." And like that's two men realizing, "Oh, we're made for life." There's no question. Little Boston is the biggest fine so far. Right. That's 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 him making his fortune. That moment when the Derek explodes, that's when he realizes, "I'm I'm set for life. My kids are set for they- life." But like. What, what was he set before that? Uh, or like, I, was he just like selling himself as a successful man in order to get Little Boston? For the era, I think we're led to believe, I mean, he's savvy. He certainly got cash on hand. Um, and this is where I think it helps if you – I have not read Olive Oil. I tried. It was kind of long and I didn't really get into it. But Upton Sinclair is kind of dry. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yes, yeah. But it helps to understand the time period. This was like – there were hundreds if not thousands of guys – descending upon the southwest texas all the way to california doing this they're digging everybody's like it's basically like a, the gold rush everybody's searching for oil and yeah you might strike a bit of oil but it varies how much you're actually accessing and also whether you have the resources to remove it from the earth clearly he's found oil and 
he's savvy in the sense that we we've kind of are led to believe that after that those early years when he found it himself at least the first the beginning of the film he finds it himself uh he seems to be going around and he's selling himself to communities that have struck oil and then he's not actively following through and making deals with them instead he's figuring out ways to access that same oil before they can which is where his resources mm. come in because he very quickly decides you know what no no I don't need you guys. I can move on. I don't. But he. You're talking about the first, the first pitch. Correct. To His the initial people. pitch. Yeah. To the neighboring town, like he immediately, he immediately walks out of the, the. Oh, it's too. It's too much controversy. It's too much drama. I don't. I don't talk about the scene. I don't talk about the scene. That that's an interesting perspective that I hadn't thought of. That like, he's not interested in digging out oil that the townspeople know is there. He's more interested in digging up oil that the townspeople don't know is there. He's more interested in buying land that people don't know the value of. And then exploiting it, you know. But th- that that scene is so interesting because the first eleven minutes are a silent film, effectively. Yeah. Uh, where we get eighteen ninety eight him by himself, nineteen oh two him with a team, and then it fast forwards to nineteen eleven. And after ten eleven minutes of zero dialogue, I think there's zero dialogue. Mine, it's like him murmuring to himself, "There it is, there you yeah. are," about the silver in the mine. Yeah. Uh, he murmurs to himself. Other than that, there's no dialogue at all. And then it cuts to a close up of him. It actually fades to a close up of him. From a shot of HW, baby HW and Daniel on the train, it fades to a close-up of his face. And it's just a two, three-minute-long monologue of just, like, talky-talky-talky-talky-talky-talky-talky after having no talky for the first three minutes. And, ladies and gentlemen, I've traveled over half a day to be here tonight. And it's, you know, a big sales pitch. And I think it's, like, it's it's jarring how how wordy that speech is, having had no words in the first 11 minutes and th- th- that was the first time that really struck me is how how jarring that is and how how different this man is than when we first were introduced to him even 10 minutes ago when he was a single entity hugging himself in the wind in the cold and now he is this talkative very practiced precise you know his mustache is trimmed he has this trimmed five o'clock shadow and his hat is just so and like he's got that mustache and he hadn't even seen top gun maverick yet he hadn't even seen Tuscan <laughs> He had not seen Miles Teller. But and clearly he's practiced this pitch to them. He's given this pitch a hundred times. And he knows exactly when to take a pause. And, and like he gets interrupted and he just waits for them to stop talking and then he continues. And like he even like And doesn't respond gets, to he, what they say. He just keeps going. He doesn't with respond what, to what they yeah. say. And also like his first word after the interruption is maybe the quietest word he speaks. He makes them lean forward after there's an interruption, he he, he lets the interruption subside. And then he lets them lean forward, and he goes, "I do my own drilling." That's so interesting to me. Like, wh- what do you what do you got on 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 that scene, uh, TJ? Well, uh, anything. A couple things. I mean, this isn't just that scene. This runs throughout the movie. But the the other thing that this film is about is the kind of uniquely American attraction to and willingness to submit to megalomaniacal figures. Yeah, we love showmen. We love people that if if you're wealthy, we think therefore you must be smart. Look at the people yes. that are like big role models for young men right now. Donald Trump and Elon yes. Musk. Yes. They're both assholes, yes. but they have a lot of money. So that's the thing. That's that's why this movie will always be timeless. Is because it, it is it is loosely about Edward Doheny. Edward Doheny was the basis of the character that Upton Sinclair wrote the novel on, so therefore Edward Doheny is kind of some of the basis of of Daniel Plainview, just because he is he is from Fond du Lac, Wisconsin. He spent some time in Kansas, and then he hit big 
in Los Angeles. And if you've ever come to Los Angeles, there's a few streets named after Doheny, particularly in Beverly Hills, right. the West Hollywood area. So like he was a big deal. And he was also caught up in the Teapot Dome scandal from which the milkshake line is derived. So he is somewhat based on a real person, but you could also say that he is Rockefeller. He is Hearst. He is Donald Trump in 2012. He's an archetype he is of Elon Musk. He yeah. is Jeff Bezos. He is Mark Zuckerberg. He is a titan. He. We will never run out of this guy. Less, less. I think Zuckerberg and Bezos because the bravura and the showmanship has to be a part of it. You know, teenage boys aren't worshiping Mark Zuckerberg. They're worshiping Elon Musk because he trolls people on Twitter. Well, Daniel Day Lewis would be a Twitter troll. I mean, Daniel Plainview. Sorry. Ken, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say the difference. I mean, like Musk, also despite himself or however you want, he's been successful, um, which is why let's let's leave let's leave Trump out of this because he's not smart enough or successful enough to qualify here. Excuse uh, me, I've got a very big brain. Okay, I got but, big words. Hey, he's been nominated for several Emmys, Ken. <laughs> yes, in the um, how many Emmys have you been nominated for, Ken? Competition category mm-hmm. can i go back to that scene though because uh, we'll talk about yes. the mag- megalomaniac business um yes the there's a really interesting shot because it's again a, a rather long shot just slowly pushing in on him as he's doing the speech and then it just gently shifts over to hw for a beat mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. back mm-hmm. to Daniel. and then it shifts back yeah and a quick thing about yeah. hw dylan frazier plays hw I love him in this. Only film credits. Only, yeah. only, only film, film credits. credits. And he yes. apparently uh, you know, like wasn't auditioning, whatever, and his mom was like, I need to know more about this Daniel Day-Lewis person you're going to hang out with. So the legend goes, she rented Gangs of yeah. New York, and people were like, yes. oh shit, get her age of and innocence. And she's going to pull... She's- yeah, she's going to pull him out of the movie. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> I love him in this, though, because you can tell he's not an actor. He has such a like interesting almost expressionless face there's times yeah. where he doesn't react to things and i i find it really fascinating he seems very natural as opposed to most child performances like imagine like jacob tremblay in this or something you know where i'd rather not <laughs> my point exactly right um and i i just think he's so interesting in here with doing very very little um so i'm, yeah. I'm a fan of his performance yeah i agree He's got to do quite. He's actually got to do quite a bit. He's 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 essential to the story working. Oh yeah, yeah. So he has a lot to do, but yeah, he doesn't uh, he doesn't show his cards much. He doesn't have that like theater kid energy that a lot of child actors have. Well, like just you know? I, I don't want to get out of. Uh, we're, I know we're talking about that first scene, but while we're talking about uh, his performance, the the nighttime scene where he sets fire to the cabin. Mm. Mm-hmm. Like he's preceded the scenes preceding that he's on to fake Henry, but even before Daniel is like Daniel has been, oh, yeah. has been, it, it, he's blind to it. He's allowed himself to be taken over. HW is the one who's actually onto it first. <laughs> and he's got to play. He plays that so naturally. Well, I, th- I think you're also right. You're both right. Especially you TJ about how he doesn't react over the top to a lot of stuff, particularly after the accident, after he goes deaf. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he barely reacts to anything ever again after he goes deaf. Like, the, this, because he can't hear, you know? Like, the scene where, uh, you know, there are several scenes where Daniel tries to engage with him, and he just gets nothing back. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, the, the in-universe explanation is that he can't hear him when he's saying, so he can't respond. But also, like, 
there's a scene where he takes him out to get steaks and whiskey and water for him and goat's milk. Two steaks. And then, you know, tof- two steaks, whiskey, water for him, and goat's milk. Um, and like he says, let's get some, let's get some good food in you. Let's get a proper meal in you. And he just gets nothing. Right. Blank stare, blank stare, blank stare. You know, again, I'll come back to Daniel reaching out for human connection. He can't get it anymore. You know, his, 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 the well is dry in, in, on that front. Also, it's interesting that he doesn't learn sign language. I was going to say that he doesn't bother. It, he loses, yeah. he loses the, con- that connection with humanity, but it's also by choice. Mm-hmm. He doesn't it's seek just like it out. just like in Nashville. He is like Nebbity Nashville. Yeah, it's good, good yes. poll. Yes. Um, yeah, and he he uh, earlier as well doesn't seem to really listen to HW. He talks to him about like, you know, we're going to run the pipeline and we're going to do this. We'll give them quail prices, not oil prices. And we'll make it real money. But yes. then when there's a scene by the campfire where HW says, Mary says her father hits her. Yeah. And he's just like, oh, Mary, that's the small one. It's a smaller one, yes. Yeah, like he he doesn't really give a shit. But then he does take action. I was gonna, well, he I was gonna say but he does, but but less. I think less caring about Mary and more being like to Abel. Power trip, you know? Yeah, power trip because he looks yeah. right he's, over he, at Abel. Who he, he tells Abel, he's telling Abel how to run his family. Yes, without telling Abel how to run his family. Yeah, it's it is, it is a power trip. Yeah, he's it's it's pardon the crudeness. He's pulled. It's a dick measuring competition. He's pulled his out. He's con- we'll come back to that scene. later. Real quick, uh, so, not real quick, this is going to be an open can of worms, but TJ, you mentioned how the camera kind of slowly, subtly tilts towards HW, then tilts back. Robert Ellswit won his Oscar for this movie, cinematographer, best cinematography. Some of the shots in this are outstanding. The images of the landscape and the images, you know, the close-ups with oil on their face and um, the shot from, like, inside the hole and like there's like five guys over the hole and, and the sun's behind them looking down into the hole as they're waiting for to find out if there's oil coming up on the spike that they just put into the ground and that kind of stuff um talk about robert ells with cinematography ken what do you think oh it's majestic he manages okay yeah there are several sequences in this film that take place uh during what famously referred to as the magic hour I mean, they yeah. capture they capture the sun in just the right place so that it reflects perfectly mm-hmm. off of the characters, usually in the foreground. The fact that he kind of, he, he figures out how to use not just sunlight, but natural lighting to the best of his ability, including fire. All of those night sequences in Little Boston, particularly when I, after they've struck oil, but also in the cabin when the when the uh, when HW sets fire to the place, like there's no there's no. Uh, uh, artificial lighting in those scenes. Elswit knows how to place the characters. He knows what, how to place the camera so that he captures everything uh, in all of in all of the, the the natural glory of fire. This kind of again, this kind of I don't know biblical idea or biblical uh, symbolism. Robert Elswit. Uh, right after this, they had a falling out. PTA and Robert Elswit. He does not shoot the master. He comes back and shoots Inherent Vice. And then Ellswit says, I had such an unpleasant time on that film and that they fought like an old married couple and that Paul Thomas Anderson was petty, that they were never going to work together again. And then he came out after Phantom Thread and said, I can't imagine I would have shot the movie that way. So they, there's some bad blood running there. Well, Robert Ellswit also shot all of his movies up until The yeah. Master, right? Yeah. And then I believe... PTA shot Phantom Thread himself. Licorice Pizza. Same thing. I think had a... Well, he's not the credit cinematographer, but it was like him and a few of his grips kind of took turns shooting the movie, those two. Um, so I don't... There's definitely... There's not a credit cinematographer on Phantom Thread. I can't remember if there is on Licorice Pizza or not. 
That's a shame though that they're not working together anymore. Because I, I don't know, like it, we we talked about the we talked about No Controlled Men and Roger Deakins and Deakins had a different movie this year, uh, Assassination of Jesse James, which we'll talk about in the recap episode. That uh, I'm on record saying is the best cinematography I've ever seen, or among the best cinematography I've ever seen. Um, this is up there though. Yeah. Man. Like the like, but it's 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 not as flashy. Like you can watch the Assassination of Jesse James. And, and be like, okay, wow, that is, that's dazzling. These are like, you know, um, that's some great cinematography. In this, though, I don't know. It's it's less ostentatious, but it's it's really effective. And there are there's some dazzling, dazzling imagery in this. Well, I'm just using this for comparison. We'll, we'll address it more in the recap episode. Whereas Deacons uses len- different lenses to, I guess, aid him, particularly in the sense yeah. of Jesse James. Um, Ellswood mm-hmm. doesn't. Ellswood, like I said, he's, it's all about, as a cinematographer, naturally, it's all about the lighting. And for him, uh, he's... The baptism scene. The, the light coming into the church during the baptism scene is unreal. He's, yeah, he's really helping good. recreate... Like, this This is one of those films people talk about. I mean, it's on the surface. It's not a deep dive. This film captures that moment in time, in history, so well. Mm-hmm. Like, it, you fully believe that you've been transported back in time. And that's in large part due to the cinematography of Ellswood. He's taking it as it is naturally yeah yeah and honestly the reason i brought him up in the first place is tj mentioned how like the camera kind of subtly shifts towards hw and it, it it's so good at like drawing your eye certain places and that's that's like a unsung part of cinematography that people don't talk about as, as much as they should and that's knowing exactly how to get the viewer to do what you want exactly you know and i'm thinking specifically of the Derek explosion, the beginning of the Derek explosion. And how does the Derek explosion scene begin? Do you remember, Ken? Uh, I'll tell you if you don't remember. Well, you mean, you're talking, referring to the fact that HW is, is it's shown HW sitting up atop. He's, he's climbed up on kind of the side of the oil Derek. He's looking straight down the mm-hmm. hole while there are some workers. Well, it's, it starts with a wide shot and you can see the worker holding the rope you know, piercing the ground and you can see HW about 10 feet above him. You can see all that. And then it just very, very, very slowly, slowly, slowly pushes in on oh, the, the rope. Ro- yeah. It takes like 30, 40 seconds for this push in. And like, as it does, it's almost like hypnotic because the rope is like, you know, periodically going down into the ground and coming back up, going down in the ground. It, again, it's hypnotic. It just slowly, slowly, slowly pushes in over the course of 40 seconds on this guy's hand. And it's making the audience lean in. Yeah. You know, you are leaning in as this well, it's happens, creating and then that, and, and and then and then the guy's hand on the rope starts shaking, and he goes gas, 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 and everybody runs away. And then you know, because we leaned in, we're blown back, like HW is blown back, and that's just like so fucking effective and like subtle. But the sixth time you watch this, you're like, oh wow, Robert Ellsworth really made me lean in there. So TJ, I'm, what do you think? Well, I'm gonna nerd out big time because we went here. Yeah. So this this film and this becomes more a staple of of pt anderson's work here on out has a lot of longer takes but not necessarily the flashy tracking shots that you would see yes 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 do you want to continue three more yeses okay uh not necessarily those long bravura takes going into the pool in like boogie nights or you following felicity huffman as she uh bribes people to get her daughter into college in magnolia but more just kind of letting it go maybe 40 seconds, 50 seconds, something like that. And what he's doing there then, in terms of mise-en-scene and in terms of directing and shot composition, is it requires more complicated staging. 
that then interacts with the cinematography. What are you looking at in terms of contrasts between light and darks within the same frame and with editing? And I'll say a little bit about the editing in a minute. But there was an interesting experiment done by David Bordwell, who is a professor of film at, I believe, the University of Wisconsin. Or it might be Michigan. I confuse those states anyway. He's written several books on film art. And he did this experiment in uh, what's called neurocinematics. So he had 11 people sit and watch a variety of different scenes or a variety of different movies and was able to, with infrared technology, trace their eyes where they're paying attention and then to draw circles based on the size of how long you paid attention to that particular area of the frame. Josh, you're nodding. Are you familiar with this? No, but I mean, it makes sense. Oh, oh, okay. Um, As well as then blinking. It could pick up blinking. And what they found Mm -hmm. was within There Will Be Blood, there there was consistent direction of the viewer's gaze based upon, within the same shot, based upon lighting, blocking, and even lines of dialogue. And then the blinks started, people's blinks started to sync up, which is insane to think about. So the way in which, even within just one shot, those those three things come together in order to direct a viewer's gaze exactly to a particular thing, the levels, mm-hmm. the levels of kind of uh, neurocinematic engagement matched Hitchcock's, because they ran they ran it with Hitchcock. The worst score, by the way, curb your enthusiasm. Uh, which, which makes a lot of sense because that show in and of itself is, is um, you know, improvisational. But what's interesting about that is just what it says for the compositional techniques. And the scene that they mm-hmm. looked at is when Paul comes in to Daniel to tell him about that plot of land in particular. Um, the final scene in the bowling alley. No, 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 no. I'm sorry. When Paul early comes on. in. Um, oh, Paul Sunday. Okay, yes. Sorry. Yeah. He, and he's with H.W. and Fletcher Hamilton. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That that's and, and that is another like to go back to your earlier point. That is another like very subtly long take when Paul enters the room and sits down and begins talking. Like we don't get a cut to an over the shoulder, mm-hmm. f- probably for two or three minutes. Mm-hmm. I see like you know, and, and then like there are other scenes like that, like Henry's introduction. Like Henry's introduction, it, it's a, it's a single shot. It probably lasts two or three minutes, but like you don't really notice that's lasting that mm-hmm. long, just because like. You know, the blocking changes in the frame. Uh, the camera moves here and there. It kind of follows Daniel. Like, Henry's far away at first, and we get closer and closer as Daniel gets closer and closer. And, like, uh, the scene where Eli casts the ghost out of his parishioner's arthritic hands. Uh, that yes, lasts I do, again. Eli. <laughs> get out of here, ghost. You know. All the armies of my boot will kick you in the teeth. <laughs> and if I have line. no teeth, I will gum you. <laughs> As long as I have fist, I will pound you. That's one um, goddamn hell of a show. That, that's also like, <laughs> yes, exactly. exactly. But that's also like a very sub- a, a subtly long take, and we don't get any cut there until we cut to Daniel's disgusted reaction. Yeah. To the people eating it up, and then the very next shot is him talking with Eli about the guy who died in in the hole, mm-hmm. and that's one goddamn hell of a show. That also is one shot that doesn't cut, and you know mm-hmm. there's there's it's all very simple coverage, but it's 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 longer it's longer stuff and. Maybe we can transition in talking about Dan Day Lewis at this point, but like, you get to see him cook more with fewer cuts. You get to, the, he just kind of sets up the camera and just lets the greatest actor of all time act, you know? Um, and with fewer cuts, we get to see more of like his physicality and his pauses, the way he takes pauses and that kind of thing. I'll, I'll say this um, in, in the Ringer podcast on The World of Blood that I listened to 
they were referencing an interview with Paul Thomas Anderson where he was asked what makes Dan Day-Lewis so great. And Paul Thomas Anderson's two answers were, number one, every time he speaks, uh, it seems like it's coming directly from his brain and not from a script page. Like he doesn't seem like he's saying written dialogue. He seems like he's just coming up with it on the spot, which is like weirdly more rare than you might think. And number two is his physicality. The choices he makes with, you know, his cheeks and his tongue, the way he rubs his tongue over his teeth at the end of his, uh, at the end of the day, I, they won't be there. His speech to the, the townspeople and the way he chews on that piece of meat in the bowling alley, the way he pulls the whiskey bottle and like shuffles his feet uh, in the bowling alley, the way he is like bent over whenever he's drunk. The way he uses his left eyebrow, including the, the scene, the scene in which Eli has driven the ghost out of his prisoner. But also later when he's telling, when Henry asks him about H.W.'s mother and his response is he doesn't like to discuss those things, the arch of his left eyebrow in particular goes up and just stays there. Yeah. There's just this kind of like, if you, if you really drive him to a point of like, are you serious? Or, um, yeah. But I I guess to tie it all back together, there's, there's not a lot of shot reverse shot. There is a lot of like, two shots or there's just a camera on one character and the character they're in conversation with delivers their lines off screen. Cause he does There's not a whole lot of cutting back and forth. It, it, there is a lot more subtly longer shots and that kind of lets the acting shine a little more. TJ, what do you got on Dan Day Lewis in this movie? Well, I want to talk about him through talking about my favorite scene in the movie, which is the, okay. the baptism scene of where mm-hmm. Daniel gets baptized in order to, yeah, no, there's yeah, a yeah. pipeline. And uh, there's a great lead up to that where he's talking to Bandy and Bandy's like, you need to be washed in the blood. You can do it at the church of the third revelation. And he's like, I'll give you (laughs) (laughs) $5,000. And well, first of all, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. The Bandy scene. I love the Bandy scene because uh, the the scene where Bandy tells him he needs to go get baptized because Daniel is caught off guard. He is drunkenly awoken by this guy after he committed murder a few hours ago. And he is drunkenly awoken. He's awoken by this guy, and he turns on the charm immediately. He turns on the the salesman charm and says, "Oh yes, William Bandy. I mean, meant, you know." Blah, blah, blah. And he thinks he has the upper hand in this conversation. And repeatedly, three separate times, William Bandy reveals, "No, I'm not a country bumpkin that you're used to dealing with. I'm a smart guy. I know what the, I know what time it is. And you're not. You don't have the power in this conversation. I do." You you think you always think you do, but you don't hear. I do. Sorry, and then that leads into the baptism scene. And go ahead, TJ. Sorry. And Dan, Daniel's a heavy sleeper, man. Yes. Yeah, Mister um, Daniel. I love when he's like, "The house is on fire." He gets nothing. He's like, "It's your brother Eli," and he's like, "No, <laughs> he wakes up." Yeah. But that baptism scene, which is so wonderful. He, he, we know he's going into it transactionally. We know Eli is the bane oh, yeah. of his existence. We know that. We think that to him, religion is a false god and a superstition. He goes in there, and Eli immediately is like, "Okay, I, I literally have you down on your knees. This is my show. You're going to kiss the ring," and goes through his whole thing. And what's interesting is the things that he mentions. Okay, backsliding, he backslided. You've lusted after women. We don't see that in the movie. 
No. There's oddly in the script, like he's impotent. So few in women the, in the movie. But, in the script, he's he's impotent in the script. But then even that doesn't make it in the movie though. When they when they go into the brothel, he's not engaging there, right? Nope. So we're running nope. through that, and then and you've abandoned your child, and then that's the one that he okay, and he kind of says it quietly, right? Well, we're holding long on Daniel there, and then that's the really famous kind of outburst of I've abandoned my child, but. Uh, we we don't cut to Paul when Paul's talking, except once it gets to the slapping, and then it cuts right into a low-angle close-up. And that's a scene that also goes really quickly and really effectively from the hilarity of Daniel mocking what's going on to, as it follows him back to his chair, there's a part of him that really hopes it took. Hmm. You know, where he's like, uh, doing something, just give me the blood, Eli. You know, get away. Get out yeah. of here. Give me the blood. <laughs> give me the blood. Uh, yeah. But then watch, and that's what the camera does. It, it follows him sit all the way back down. As people hug him Mary. and embrace and him even and welcome kind him. Because he doesn't like people, right? I hate most people. And he doesn't turn on charm. He's a little bit sullen there. He's allowing himself to be consoled. And I think what's so interesting about that scene and that performance in that scene is I think there's a little part of him that wishes it takes. Because even though we tend to think he's anti-religion, when he slaps the shit out of Eli next to the oil pool, he says, what are you going to come and make my son here again? You don't Mm -hmm. say that if you really think that his magic is completely bunk. Right. Right. What's the next scene? What's the next scene after he's baptized? Uh, he gets HW back. HW comes home, yeah. Which is another great, another great shot, subtly long shot. It begins on the pipeline, and the camera tracks down the length of the pipeline as it's being installed. The workers roll the pipeline into the track they've dug out, and then it continues rolling. The camera continues moving along as they're digging out mm-hmm. more room for the next segment of the pipeline. The camera continues rolling on, and out in the background you see a car pull up, and then Daniel walks away from the pipeline to greet his son, and then. Still with no cut, Daniel and H.W. walk away, and H.W. Yeah, when he tries to hug him. There's a lot of information in that shot, and a lot mm-hmm. of story being told mm-hmm. in that shot of the pipeline being built, Daniel walking away from the pipeline being built, try to embrace H.W., and H.W.'s not happening. And and another bit of like incidental trivia is supposedly when they were doing a take, not the one in the film, but where Paul Dano's just slapping the crap out of him up there, and Daniel's saying stuff back to him that you can't really hear. One of the things he said to him... baptism scene, you mean? Yeah. One of the things he said to him was, Dylan slaps harder than you. Because then HW (laughs) in the next scene hits him. Um, But anyway, sorry. Well, the the other piece of trivia that I believe I pulled from IMDb, so it's unsourced, but I believe... According to the late 2000s IMDb trivia boards, they shot the baptism scene the day after they shot the scene where Daniel Day-Lewis beats the crap out of... Paul Dano. Oh, wow. It, it would uh-huh. make sense yeah, given so. what we're to take away from, I mean, Eli's not doing it really to save this man. He's, he's, there's a, there's a bit of revenge. Like this is. And like, that he, moment right after where he goes up and shakes his hand and pulls yes. it in. And then you see Paul Dano's face. Great, great like, scene well, where you don't hear what's exchanged, uh-huh. but you can see it on Dano's face. So that shot is mirroring a shot from earlier in the movie that I, I've noticed this. I'm like, I don't know, my 10th watch, something like that. When Paul Sunday comes to talk to Dan Day Lewis and tell him about Little Boston, oh yeah, Daniel shakes his hand and says, back. <laughs> "If I go up all the way up there and find you've been lying to me, I'm going to find you and take more than my money back. Is that all right with you, sir?" 
it's the exact same shot mm. composition as when he shakes Eli's hand. And Daniel's dressed the same with his white white undershirt and, and yes. vest. Interesting. He's uh, turned the same angle away from the camera. He's shaking hands with Paul Dano. Again, the exact same as that earlier scene. So, like, I always took that to mean he shakes Paul Sunday's hand in that, you know, tableau and says and threatens him. He says, if I go up there, I'm going to take more of my money back. And so even though we can't hear what he says to Eli when the tableau repeats after the baptism scene, I'm assuming it's something along those lines. You know, a threat wrapped in a business, you know, a, a non-threatening I don't, phrase. I don't necessarily you know? believe this anymore, but when I was 18, I thought that what it was, because when he's bowling at him, he says, I told you I would eat you. I told you I would eat you up. <laughs> mm. So I always thought that yeah. that's what he, where he's like, I'm going to eat you and bury you underground. Yeah. <laughs> it does. It, I mean, it leaves Dano, like Dano's character, Eli's just left standing there kind of like <laughs> ter- mm-hmm. terrified. But I do yeah. think, TJ, what you were talking about, the fact that there's this little part of him, again, it speaks to the tragedy of the character maybe, and but that he might be hoping it takes. There's, I don't think there's any question that there's a part of Daniel Playview that believes in a higher power or God, or wants to believe in a higher power. Like, he wants to be redeemed perhaps on some level, or at least he's willing to accept that there's God. In fact, at the end, he seems to be yelling at Eli as if, you know, well, God now speaks through me. Sort of, mm. you know, but the I am the third revelation. Mm-hmm. The, his problem is this organized religion, particularly Eli's. Eli is a fraudster. Eli is no better than Daniel Plainview is when he's going into these towns and trying to sell his goods. Eli's doing the same thing. He's literally getting money to build the church. I mean, it's it's not even clear at the beginning when we first meet Eli. He's not the town pastor, is he, or the minister? When we first meet him, no, he just he just gets the money to, to build this church and suddenly becomes the epicenter of the community. Like he's literally doing this just to gain kind of attention. I mean, he usually he literally uses the church, gets some money, and immediately leaves Little Boston on a mission, mission work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. off yeah. he goes, and we don't see him again until years later when he's dressed nicely with a silver silver mm. crucifix around his neck like he's living a nicer life certainly than he was in little boston just like daniel i kind of want to talk about Dan day lewis more but like i'm not sure what else there is to say like I, I i don't know anything about acting so i can't like point to stuff and be like this is great acting but like i don't know this has always been like my go-to answer is the best performance i've ever seen well, and maybe it's just because, maybe it's because i saw it when i was 18 and i was like you know naive and being exposed to things for the first time and it's just kind of like never been unseated but like I don't know, man. <laughs> this is just really great. None of us are none of us are students of Stanislavski. We're not we're not acting students by any means. But like we could talk about the whole method of it all. Like this is this is Daniel Day Lewis's famous MO, right? He literally becomes the character during filming. And Yeah, and uh, again, I'm I'm mimicking the Ringer podcast I heard, but he does he like always kind of like dresses himself up either with a mustache or a hat. I don't really know what Daniel Day-Lewis looks like in real life, you know? And I don't really know, like, what he's like in real life because he's always he's always so becomes his character in a, in a way that, like, Jack Nicholson never does or Meryl Streep never does because we know uh, enough about – they have personas outside of the characters and he doesn't. He really looks or sounds like himself. He literally becomes somebody else, which is – and a lot of actors try to do this, but very few actors do it to the, this level of success. I remember the first time I saw Gangs New York. I saw Gangs New York after I saw this. And he looks kind of similar. He's got the mustache. He, it, you know, it's a period piece. It takes place about 50 years before this movie takes place. But, like, when he first steps into that movie, he we start on his feet. 
again, his physicality, he walks into frame, like digs his right foot into the dirt, kind of like squashes, a, you know, like plants it, you know, like he's squashing a bug, basically. And then the camera tilts up and he's got the mustache. He looks like Daniel Plainview. And then he opens his mouth and it is not Daniel Plainview's voice. Right. And I remember the first time I saw Gangs of New York, I was so like, it was very, very jarring hearing like a, hey, yo, Priest Valen, how you doing here at the five points? I mean, that's not what it sounds like, but it's it's closer to that than to, in real life, <laughs> than to Daniel Plainview. Well, in real life, he has a rather quiet well-educated English accent. Like, yeah. he's, he's yeah. not... Which I only know because I've seen him accept Academy right. Awards. Yeah, he's... The I know what it sounds like in real life. But the fact of the matter, even from the beginning, I love the fact the very beginning of this film, he looks like what you imagine an old-time prospector looking like. Like, with the loose yeah. white cotton, like, or, or cloth shirt or whatever, with the uh, the, the suspenders and the pants, and the big, big hat. Yeah. yeah. He, Covering dust. Yeah, he looks like your stereotypical... He looks like Tom Waits in uh, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yes, actually. He... It didn't hit nothing important! He's, he, he embodies this character from the beginning... I am picturing, the first time I saw this film, a very different character. Good night, little pocket! A very different character than what we end up getting. There's, he's a lot more in control. Like, the, the once we cut away, once the voiceover enters and we get him in 1911, as you said, he's transformed himself. He's He's got a very controlled, prepared... Manicured, controlled, yeah. prepared, yeah. yeah. And throughout the film, he's like that. Even, even when he speaks with uh, Eli... Uh, in the bowling alley, he is very like. I, I love when Eli makes them drinks, and he's about to hand Daniel drinks. Says, "Oh no, thank you, thank you so much." <laughs> he turns his drink down, and he like you know just like strings Eli along that whole time, and like lets Eli talk, lets Eli talk. Yes, I'm interested. Tell me more. Yes, I'm interested. And then just at the right moment, that land's been had. Yeah, what's called drainage, Eli. I own everything around it, so I. Okay, he just says it so matter of factly too. It's not until it's yes. not until the milkshake thing does he even get up. To express yes. exactly what he's talking about, but it's just and there's there's a wonderful detail there as well that if you look at what Eli's brought over, it's two whiskeys and then a chaser, mm. and he's got a chaser for himself. He doesn't offer the chaser to Daniel, um, which I think is just a really nice character detail between the the two of them. Yeah. You know, anything any, TJ have anything on Daniel Lewis before we move on? I'm talking about Johnny Greenwood. I li- I likewise find it difficult to talk about acting. Um, I, I love this performance. It's larger than life. It's iconic. It is also one, though, that works because the rest of the film is at this level, is at this tone. Yes. And so yes. To, to rewind a couple weeks, George Clooney is great in Michael Clayton. Michael Clayton is a muted, quiet thriller. Um, if Daniel Day-Lewis was doing like, I'm a janitor, I'm the man you pay off in, in Michael Clayton, <laughs> it doesn't work, right? right? Um, but it, it is, it's, it, I love the performance. Um, I, in fact, I told my dad, I watched this movie the other night and, uh, here's Tim Keeley's contribution to serious film people. You know what? That Daniel Day Lewis. Wow. He's a great actor. I was that's like, right, Tim. Can I quote you on that? No. That's right. <laughs> yes, that's correct. But I, I like what you said though, how it, it just, it works in conjunction with the movie. And that's kind of why I mentioned that like the shots are long and the shots just kind of let Dan Day Lewis cook. Like, Ellswood's cinematography, Dylan Tickner's editing, Johnny Greenwood's music, and Dan Day-Lewis's acting all just, like, coalesce into something really, really, really special. And, again, not until the 15th time I'm watching the movie do I really begin to appreciate, like, how special 
all these elements are coming not together. unlike not unlike the oil in the film he allows his character and many times he just allows his, his character temper to just sit there are certain mm-hmm. moments in the film when he explodes but my, my favorite moment of his acting is the look he gives eli the second time eli says and you abandon your child and then he looks up at him like oh i get chills you mentioned this you mentioned this earlier how eli is like kind of like saying you've lust after women you drink you ban your child he's kind of like listing these sins of daniel and he's like waiting for one to stick right and it's it's when he realizes that the child one is the one that's gonna needle into daniel's that's why he keeps repeating that one Mm -hmm. and he makes daniel yell that one but you're right that look he gives him is Maybe that's when he decides to kill Eli, honestly. <laughs> Maybe right then, like 15 years before he actually does it. Yeah. Um, Can I say something about Paul Dano real quickly? Yeah. I like him. I like the projects he chooses. It's hard to talk about acting because it's hard to find a vocabulary for it. There's ticks he has that don't work for me. And I told you guys off mic before we did this, I was writing a syllabus and had the Batman on in the background. And... Parts of that movie, I really like him in it, but then that scene where he's in the jail with Batman, he just goes to these decibels that, and he kind of, no one's going to be able to see this, but he kind of has this face, this like, you know, and it just, I I don't know, parts of his his kind of going hysterical don't work for me. Well, I think that that's in the Batman is kind of when like the facade falls away for that character. So I think that's kind of, there's some purposeful stuff going on with that scene in particular. Um I think he's great in this. I think he's like he's especially because like he he gets tapped in the shoulder. Hey, can you uh, be the foils of Dan Day Lewis with like no preparation time at all? Can you just like step in and be in the scene and get your ass kicked? Um, cool. Okay, cool. Uh, and he really holds his own. Like, I mean, considering he's going toe to toe with Dan Day Lewis, and you know, again, maybe the best film performance I've ever seen in any movie. Um, he really holds his own. I think he's great. He's also really great as Paul. The scene with Paul, mm. like I, I love him in that scene. I like him in that scene more than I like really any scene with Eli, to be perfectly honest. What, what I also like about the acting in this is that I think when people talk about acting, they usually point to like the big, flashy, emotional outbursts. And that's like what people point to as like good acting. But serious film people are more cautious point to those because it's such like a – it's an over-the-top emotion, emotional expression. And maybe serious film people are more likely to point to subtle pieces of acting but the big emotional shouty pieces in this movie are like textually performances within the movie itself whether it be get out of your ghost from eli or it be daniel's i've abandoned my child like those are both performance scenes like yes it's the actor going over the top but like eli is selling something with his get out of your ghost bit he's performing for his congregation And Daniel is selling something with a, I've abandoned my child. He's trying to sell to Eli and also to the congregation that he is actually taking this seriously. When he's more, not. more so to the congregation. He's again. I think it comes back to that handshake afterward. He's not really. Eli doesn't believe that he's. Well, the the best part of that scene, honestly, it's not Dan Day Lewis yelling, "I've abandoned my child." The best part of that scene is him saying to himself, "There's a pipeline." Yes, yes. The day, the daylight between "I've abandoned my boy" and "There's a pipeline" is. It's it's a hair and just the the different emotion in those two lines, you know that there's a pipeline undercuts. I've abandoned my boy, and like you realize, oh, he's just yeah. There's maybe some truth to it. Maybe he's feeling this a little bit because he does bring H.W. back in the next scene. But like this is all just uh, you know an act to get his. Yeah, money. It's the up and down tone of humor in the scene as well. Like we get we get humor yeah. with the slapping, 
it becomes more serious with the abandonment and then we go back to a bit of humor like okay clearly he's not seen the light he this is needs to an end uh just one more thing to get one more thing he has to check off in order to get the oil and the pipeline we're, we're running long i just want to say uh johnny greenwood's music here is i think the best movie music of the 21st century and the fact that it was nominated for an Oscar on technicality because it was pre-existing, some of it was like not original to the movie is dog shit. Um, this is like the gold standard of a of a of a modern film score, I think. TJ, thoughts? I refrain from using such superlatives. However, I love the score. I own the soundtrack. <laughs> I listen to it when I write or grade. Sometimes I have it on vinyl. I have the soundtrack on vinyl. Yeah. That might be no the most deal. hipster thing anyone said over the last. <laughs> it's, like, it's, it's not a big deal. It's it's um, it's just it's not a big thing. It's not a big deal. Don't worry about it. Well, I have a orchestra in my house that plays. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Demand, it's it's, so. it's no big deal. Uh-huh. It's no big deal. I just have this on vinyl. Yeah. Like you know, I just think it kind of like sounds better on vinyl. You know, it just kind of just it just sounds a little bit better on vinyl. Yeah, on vinyl. This this record on vinyl. Ken, what do you think of this uh, soundtrack, which I have on vinyl? Did I tell you that. <laughs> I, I it just sounds. Better. I only have it just sounds. I better. have a zither performer come in and he only plays the third man and this. <laughs> just I, that's all. Um, no, I love the, I love the score. I have a pianola. I have a pianola. I it just I better. agree with you. There are a few films, at least in recent recent memory for sure, that I I can really think about or picture in my mind where the score works more perfectly. Like there are other yeah. films that may be as good, but I don't think a film can be better than this. When it, the score can be better, couldn't possibly be. I mean, there's there's a ton of music in this that like just is perfect. Like again, that the overture, you know, just the as we see the hills and Daniel with the pickaxe. There are two tracks overlaid on the burning oil derrick scene. The the percussiveness of the oil derrick scene is insane, and how like that scene begins without score, and it doesn't start until Daniel's carrying HW away, and it starts small but percussive, and it just builds and builds and builds and builds and builds and builds. That's um, we'll we'll talk to the derrick about the derrick scene by itself, but also the like there's a very melancholy piece of music as he's giving the second version of. Uh, I've traveled over half our state to be here tonight. Speech this time he's giving it to Little Boston, and it's you know he's talking about you know let's build a, a lovely school here in Little Boston, and uh, you know all things that you never see. And he talks about I help my men bring their families, and then it shows the guys come out of the tents, and it's just them <laughs> exactly. You know? There's yeah. no families. Yeah. yeah, and he says you know this community will not only survive but flourish. But there's a piece of music playing over that that just like it, it's a very melancholy piece of music, and. He is talking up a, a big game here. He is talking about like really nice things of, you know, you'll we'll have a school, we'll have irrigation, we'll have bread. We'll have bread. But the melancholy music kind of just kind of clues you into the fact that this is a false promise, that none of this is going to come to fruition. And this is actually, a, he's actually grifting these people and it's sad and he's taking everything from them. Um, and that piece of music we hear again at the end of the movie as he's descending the stairs after he tells off H- adult HW and tells him pass from a basket we hear that music again as we see a flashback of Daniel and young HW like the the melancholy music of you know maybe his last happy memory of him and HW before he kills Eli the music which is throughout the film largely discordant i mean it, it serves as a pall over the proceedings like it it really does kind of shadow everything in kind of this unhappy unnerving existence um it's not nothing settled it's nothing it's it's not peace it's certainly not peaceful um until i mean until you could argue we get to the end of brahms but even that's not peaceful it's so kind of 
just in your face. And, I love that cue. Oh, though. it's fantastic. I love that cue so much. So, so much. We're running along. We, I want to talk about the Derek scene, and then maybe we can wrap up, unless there's something else you guys want to talk about. No, that sounds good. I mentioned the start of the Derek scene and Ellsworth's long, slow push into the rope that begins in a wide shot with HW up top and then pushes into the rope. Uh, great stuff from Ellswit. Uh Can you mention Magic Hour? Some of the lighting in the Derek scene, I, I don't know, because that had to have taken weeks to shoot the Derek scene, but somehow the lighting, the continuity works and like... It's like late afternoon, but then like the because of the black clouds, it suddenly looks like it's midnight. And there's just an ins. I I don't know how they got this, but there's a shot of Daniel and um, Kieran Hines, and the Derek is on fire beyond them. But you can see their silhouettes, and then the Derek falls over at, at uh, a flame, and like the edges of the frame are kind of like uh, kind of yes, blurry. It's like an iris like a- almost. Like an iris, yeah. And then Daniel and Kieran Hines like celebrate as the Derek falls over, and Daniel laughs and, and hugs him. Like, how the hell did they get that shot? How did they get that shot? I I have, I have no idea. I have absolutely no idea. Well, it, it, it's hellish. Um, they're, yeah, they're mm-hmm. yeah two giddy little devils. That that sh- that scene notably ends with a slow push into Daniel's oil covered face, and he looks like a demon because like. He's he's surrounded in darkness. His face is covered in darkness. And like you, you can kind of only see just like his eyes and his mouth and like a little bit of his face. But like he looks exa- he looks like well. It's yeah. it's the moment where he sells his soul to the devil because there's also there's another great composition when he like that and he has the people go in and like do the blow up thing mm-hmm. where it looks like he's kneeling yeah, yeah. in prayer before it as though yeah. it's some sort of mm-hmm. like relic or statue or, or monument. Yeah. It's also because this this film is also about like masculine domination. It's big giant phallus. Um, spewing into the sky and yes. a bunch of dudes dancing around it. Um, it's There's a lot of psychosexual commentary that's going on here as well. It comes soon after uh, Eli's uh, performance in the church with the old lady. This is Daniel's answer to that. Like, this is mm. his goddamn hell it's of a show. It's the next scene. Yeah. Mm. It's, it's the next scene. And it's, yeah, it's, it's very next scene. larger than life. It's huge. Mm. It's impre- It's just awesome. I always thought this was the midpoint of the movie, but it's it's not quite there. No, it's before the midpoint. Yeah, right? yeah. It's early on. And also, you know, talk about theme through action. Like, what happens here is Daniel runs to go retrieve H.W., takes him to the mess hall, and then leaves him. Mm-hmm. He leaves him to go tend to his Derek that is currently, you know, the key moment of the Derek production. He does seem a little he does seem a little torn about that though. What's not he doesn't totally abandon him like willingly. He is HW yells pleadingly don't yes. leave and then he leaves. Well, but he, well and that, and the the core of that is his individualism because he says to Fletcher Hamilton, "No one can get at it except for me." And mm-hmm. I I think he yep. believes that no one else could put this fire out except for him, even though he doesn't really do that much. <laughs> There's a tragic there's a tragic figure within Daniel Plainview in the sense that I don't think certainly in the beginning of the film there is certainly humanity there. He says later when he's when he's cutting off ties with HW as we said he he's tells him that he only adopted him more or less for image. Hence when we get him in 1911 at the meeting like he's there to sell some to sell himself. Um but there's no way that a human being takes on raising a child like that without heart. Like, there's something there. He's wanting an attachment to another human living being. And I think he does care for H.W. It's just, 
yeah, he's driven so much by greed and so much by the oil that, yes, when push comes to shove, not unlike what people experience in business in America, what is very common, this pull between family and, and professional life mm. or business and the drive for money, like, I, you know, I love you, but, right? So H.W., he's trying to calm H.W. down, even though in the moment he's realizing H.W. can't hear anything at this second, there's something wrong with him, but I have to go take care of this and I'll come back. And you get that scene when he's got his hands on his knees and he's kind of bent over and Kieran Hines fi- Fletcher finally asks him, is HW, how's HW? Is he all right? HW okay? Yeah. No, he no, isn't. he isn't. And Kieran Hines, like great acting from Kieran Hines, subtle acting throughout the film, but he reads Daniel Plainview so well throughout this film. He's He, he almost like, if you watch Kieran Hines in all of these scenes, particularly the scene where Paul comes to first tell them about Little Boston, Kieran Hines is kind of our window into Daniel Plainview in the interim, like between his mm. discovery in nineteen in 1898, 1902, and 1911. Fletcher knows some stuff. He knows what this guy is capable of. Same thing when he's asking about, oh, you're bringing Henry to the meeting? One, there's a level of distrust, and also, like, I'm, I'm not really sure what you're what you're doing with this guy like what's your Mm -hmm. end goal because he seems Mm -hmm. to read him and if you read kieran hines everything he's always got an eye to to daniel day lewis as if what's going to set him off what is his what is his motivation here and in that moment there's this like deep concern in kieran hines and he's the one that goes racing off Mm -hmm. to hw initially almost as if he knows that that daniel's not going to make a move right now it's consistent with, you know, his pitch is, I'm an oil man, and then a little bit later, I'm also a family man. You know, what comes mm-hmm. first, right? One last que- question or point that I had just in the little notes I scribbled. There was also a little bit of discourse around this film when it came out uh, that there's like two, I think technically three female speaking roles in the whole movie. Uh, Mary Sunday, Mrs. Bankside. In the, Who's Mrs. Bankside? Uh, right after the, his first time he gives the speech, he goes and talks to that couple. Oh, right. Mm, yeah, 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 yeah. And um, she asks, where's, where's your wife? Yeah. Where's your wife? Yeah. And then, actually, yeah. in that speech scene, there is a woman yelling, and somebody goes, get that woman out of here! Uh, I, I always read the lack of like female presence in this movie as it... Conscious of that, because in the first dialogue scene, we have somebody yell, get that woman out of here. And thus, it's this is about uh, men and war and greed. But my other my other defense of that of maybe why there's not this is a very sexless movie, um, mm. and Paul Thomas Anderson is not afraid of depic- frank depictions of sex. He's not afraid of writing some really damn great female roles. Like if you look at his filmography, he has some fantastic uh, roles uh, characters for women in his films. But I didn't know if you guys had. I don't know if that ever bumped for you that there's like no women in this movie. Well, it's funny you mentioned that because that's that's actually par- partially why Roger Ebert only gave this three and a half and not four stars. Wow. His review ends his review ends with the following sentence: "But there will be blood is not perfect, and in its imperfections (parentheses its unbending characters, its lack of women, or any reflection of ordinary society, its ending, its relentlessness) we may see its reach exceeding its grasp, which is not a dishonorable thing." Thank you, Roger, with your... the. I disagree. We we got word now from the ambassador from Wilkistan, Roger Ebert, everybody. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> get, get out of here with that. Um, I'm sorry, what was your question? Well, <laughs> about, just, about the lack of women? Um, if you guys had anything to say about... I mean, I gave you my kind of read and defense of it, but... I guess the criticism has to be in the choice 
of the subject matter then because it doesn't it doesn't naturally lend itself to having a strong or central female role i mean the film is primarily about daniel plainview we've discussed he has no romantic interest in this film he has no significant other at the time he wouldn't be hiring women of course he's got kieran hines as his number two we get reference to annabelle but he's fled his family he's only got hw he doesn't like talking about like he, he doesn't even fabricate a story about hw's mother She's just gone. She or he, she died died during trial. She died birth, in childhood. Is what he says, but yeah. we, there's no. He doesn't elaborate. He does. There's no reference to her. And every time he, he she's he's asked about her multiple times, and quickly scurries past it. Like there's not a whole lot of attention brought to women other than Mary is the literally the most. She's the mm-hmm. I guess the biggest female character in the film. Yeah. Um, and also of note, the only female he seems to show any affection towards, and it's mm-hmm. partially connected to H W. I suppose. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, there seems to be yeah. some genuine connection there to her. But again, as Josh said, also part of it is to kind of lay claim or control over the situation in Little Boston. I don't know. Honestly, I ha- this is a half-baked thought, and I haven't you know put much thought into this. But like, it is, it's a brutal movie. It's a movie about brutality, and it's pretty compassionless. Mm-hmm. And I think... It, it's a choice to make the key relationships in the movie a father-son relationship and a brother-brother relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know. I think it would have a different flavor if one of the key relationships was a man and a woman. You know, that's – I don't know. I don't know. I, I, maybe it's it, – I mean, I, I think that to your point, TJ, about how, like, it's about men and their, you know, jockeying for whatever. And also, like, you know – stereotypically men are less in touch with their feelings so it's like men trying to feel a feeling basically daniel reaching out for human connection to use a phrase i keep using it him him reaching out for a brother is different than him reaching out for a woman you mm-hmm. know that has again a different flavor to it and that's maybe more difficult you know you can just go to a brothel and like have sex with a woman as henry does as daniel declines to but like an actual connection is, is different mm-hmm. and you know <laughs> honestly in this period of history even like a, a marriage is not necessarily like a, a real connection you know given mm-hmm. the, the the power dynamic transactional of, of heterosexual rela- yeah exactly uh, at the time so it's almost like the him having a brother is like the apex of mm-hmm. of in his mind of of human connection um it's almost like having a wife would be too easy you know, who, who has time, who has time for that? Josh, you point out the fact that how compassionless this film is, given the the yeah. subject matter as we discussed at the very beginning of the conversation. This, these big ideas. I mean, the film is very violent, and even when it's not, there's not a whole lot of blood. It's a violent film, and it's telling a violent story about a violent period in time, a violent transformation of of America, and the. It's it's a it's kind of a general and maybe it's not the best analysis because it's a generalization, but uh, it's not unheard of in film where we see the absence of women usually brings less compassion. Um, the the absence of women, it's been argued, is what results in a lot of violence and a lot of war throughout history. Men have been control in control for most of it, um, certainly at this period of time, and this is how they react. This is how they act upon one another and take power and control so the absence of a woman is i think somewhat easily easier to explain given the focus of the film i i got nothing left i we we went we hit everything that i wanted to hit i think uh tj you kind of alluded before turning the mics on that any conversation about this movie will kind of like 
be a little woefully lacking just because it's one of the most discussed pulled apart movies of the last 15 years so i mean mm-hmm. i don't know i just like i just like talking about this movie i like watching this movie like watching it again this week for the 20th time was a real treat um i don't get sick of it it's, it's also incredibly watchable like it's incredibly watchable like every time i sit down to watch this i think okay two and a half hours period piece it's a little slow in parts it's not really slow in parts it's not at all. I think some of the Henry stuff gets a little slow, and maybe that's what I was gonna say. Kevin I, th- I think the, the movie's performance. The but... movie, the movie, kind of comes to a halt a little bit when Henry shows up, but like not that much. And then also, as soon as Henry leaves the movie, you get William Bandy and Daniel's face. You get the baptism scene. You get H.W. coming back. You get uh, I him telling off H.M. Tilford two steaks, goat's milk, and then you get the ending. You also you look like a. Fool. Even when you do get yes. <laughs> even when Henry shows up, you do still get some really great scenes. For example, the one with uh, the Standard Oil Men, um, oh, yeah. Tilford. Yeah. Um, which, by the way, I'm going to come to your house. I'm going to find where you're sleeping. I'm going to cut your. By throat. the way, that gives you a clue. If we're talking about connections, as far as predicting what's going to happen to Eli, once Eli strikes on that abandonment of child thing, which is basically judging him for ba- for how he's fathered his child, which is which was H M Tilford. We've already we've already seen. We've already seen him tell off somebody. We see him tell someone off for interfering. I told H.M. Tilford where he could shove that. Yes. <laughs> like, we know what he's going to do to people who interfere there. So, uh, and I'm trying to sum up here, but like, you know, we usually end these by talking about putting this in a modern context. You know, would this be nominated for Best Picture today? How does this compare to other Best Picture nominees we've seen, um, et cetera? And I, I, I don't even want to have that conversation. This is one of the best movies I've ever seen. I, that's not like a, a weird take. This is the consensus. I, I think any list of the best movies of the 21st century, this is in the top five. I don't think I've ever seen a list that where this it is, is in the it top is five. It is my t- number one for the century so far. Fun fact, um, the list I sent you guys a while ago that was like the 25 by decade that's pulled from the they shoot pictures, don't they, dot com. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's obviously in there for its decade, but if you look at their top 10, it's ranked, I believe, fifth of the century after in the mood for love, yeah. Mulholland drive. Yeah. Yee mm-hmm. Yee. And their the, yeah. the tree of life. Those are all the usual suspects, mm-hmm. uh, in the mood for love, Mulholland drive, tree of life. Yee Yee sometimes above or below their early blood, but, um, I like the BBC's list from 2016 BBC pulled like several hundred critics around the world. Uh, in 2016 for the greatest films of the 21st century. Mulholland Drive is number one. In Mood for Love is number two. I think uh, There Will Be Blood is in the top ten somewhere. I think it was like maybe number three or something like that. I don't know. I'm pulling it up now. It was, yeah, number, it was number three. Yeah. It was number three. Okay, there you go. Um, that's a great list. That's a really good list. I, I That's like my definitive list of 2000-2016. Um, I don't know. I mean, it, how does, how, I guess I will ask, though. How does this compare to other Best Picture nominees? Ken? Oh, it it it's clearly one of the one of the all time best. I, th- it's one of the great best picture nominees. We're gonna we're gonna discuss in the recap. It's we'll not talk the winner. about it next episode. It's not the winner. Yeah, but the, it, you're hard pressed. Also, like we'll discuss again the recap. We'll go back to No Country. But I mean, um, all time, There Will Be Blood is certainly one of the more outstanding uh, films to see the Academy recognize in the number that it does. Like it got a, eight nominations. Yeah, okay, yeah, let's, let's talk about that real quick. It, it it got nominated for Best Picture, Best Director for Paul Thomas Anderson, Best Actor for Jan Day-Lewis, Best Adaptive Screenplay for Paul Thomas Anderson, Best Art Direction for Jack Fisk, Best Cinematography, Robert Ellswit, Best Editing, Dylan Tickner, and Best Sound Editing, uh, Chris Scarabosio and Matthew Wood, and it only won Best Actor and Best Cinematography 
and it lost, I believe, picture director and adaptive screenplay and editing. No, not editing. It lost picture director and screenplay to, the, to No Country and maybe a, a, another one, maybe sound it, editing or something. I don't in, in in any other year, just pick out a random year from the 94 years we've had thus far. Like, it could easily have won all eight of those. It's just kind editing of Editing and sound editing were born ultimatum. Yeah. And then production yeah, design me. was Sweeney Todd. Mm, I like that movie. Maybe I'm crazy, but I like it. Again, this is one of the best movies I've ever seen. I, I alluded to a list where we, all three of us collectively did our top 100 last year. Uh, I put this at number 10 in my top 100 of all time. Mm. But like watching it this week, it should probably be higher. Mm. Like I'm looking at my list now and like, you know, some of the stuff I have ahead of this, I'm like, what am I thinking? This movie is better than the nose. Um, TJ, how does this compare to Best Picture nominees you've seen? It's one of the best films to ever lose Best Picture. Uh, that is a very interesting question. Like, what's the best movie to ever lose Best Picture? I mean, what what are some things that have lost Best Picture? This Citizen conventional Kane. wisdom. Everyone says it's Citizen Kane, right? right? But I like this more than Citizen. Two thousand one lost Best Picture. Right. Two thousand one is Space Odyssey. Raging Bull lost Best Picture. That's a that's a yep. big one. Um, Citizen Kane. This uh, Goodfellas. Taxi I think Driver. Goodfellas. Taxi. Yes, there you go. Honestly, I'm looking at my the tree top of life of all time and like tree of life. Yes, um, I like this more than tree of life. I like this more than taxi driver. Uh, I don't know, man. This 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 is uh, possibly my pick for the best movie to ever lose best picture. But that's something we can talk about mm-hmm. next week, I guess. Would it, um, would it win? Anything else? Would it win today? I don't think so. If it came out today, would it win best picture? Yeah, and I'm getting a week ahead, perhaps, but. If these five films were nominated now, I think Juno wins. Coda uh, just won. Yeah, I think Juno wins. I don't, know, but hmm, I don't know about that. That's a really interesting remember question. What, remember what won before Coda? Uh, between Green Book and Coda, Nomadland. You had Parasite and Nomadland and Parasite. Yeah, yeah. you had some. You had some really interesting and, and kind of out there picks for the Academy. So they kind of jockey back and forth between a rote, middle of the road crowd pleaser and something more ambitious and interesting and, and uh, I guess art artful. A, a lot of a lot of points and questions are popping up in my head right now, but I want to save them all for the recap episode next week. So I'll I'll table them for now. Any closing thoughts on there will be blood. Incredible movie, one of the best ever. I don't get sick of it. Um, again, it's watchable. It's exciting. It's uh, again to pair what I've heard from the Ringer. It's low key, pretty good, like espionage, corporate espionage thriller, <laughs> in, to some extent. But also like it's also about America and about capitalism and about the search for human connection and um, the failure to find human connection and how wealth shields you from consequences and also about grifting. And people in power subjugating people not in power. It's it's about everything. I don't know, I don't mm. know what, to, what to keep saying about it. Uh, any any closing thoughts, Ken? No, it is uh, after The Godfather, probably my second favorite film. To answer the question, what is a great film about America? That there will be blood. It speaks so deeply about where we were and where we are. I think again, reason why it's timeless. If only in the opening scene, Dan Lewis had turned to the camera and said, I believe in America, <laughs> then this would be this would be your number one favorite movie about America. TJ, any closing thoughts? Like No Country for Old Men, this was one that, you know, I told you guys already, I saw it three times in the theater, but this was one that as soon as the Brahms and the There Will Be Blood title card comes up at the end, you're like, 
I just saw an all timer. You know? Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to repeat something I said in a previous episode. I'm going to say this again in the recap episode. The fact that like I was in my first film class, the fall that this came out and Michael Clayton came out and, uh, no country for old men came out. And like, I just sought out these movies the first time because my film teacher was telling me to. And like my first reaction was like, wait, is is this like, are there movies like this every year that I just haven't been paying attention to? Like, is this what movies are? Holy shit. Movies. Like you, you walk out of this and you're like, holy shit. Movies. Movies exist. Oh my God. Um, and it turns out, no, uh, not every year is like that. And movies are not always as good as there will be. Like I was more struck and, by uh, that. You like listened to and did what your teacher said. That's, amazing that that should not remotely surprise you if you knew me in high school no no, i'm not talking about you i'm just wow what what great students that that a that a that a student would pay attention to the teachers yeah Yeah. we're out here we out here yeah that about wraps up i guess thank you for listening to serious film people thank you for listening to our series and the films 2007 2007 movies 2008 ceremony and uh join us again next week well we will recap the five movies and talk about talk about them in the context of the year and what else came out in 2007 maybe what should have won best picture and um rank the five movies according to how much we like them and we will talk about the big question that we kind of danced around this episode which is better no controlled man or there will be blood the e- eternal question uh or, of 2007. or juno or atonement or michael or, clayton or, or juno <laughs> or atonement or michael clayton so please join us again to hear the great debate on uh, these five movies next week. Goodbye. We're finished!